All right. Well, thank you for joining us uh, at this edition of The Freed Thinker. Um, I am going to be joined today by Colton Carlson and uh, Vincent, the fake Greg Bonson, and we'll be reviewing and giving our comments about the recent debate between Tim Stratton and James White dealing with Is Molinism Biblical? Uh, I think that was the official the official title of the debate. Um, if you like this content, uh, please subscribe below, click the bell, get the get the um, uh, notifications for any new content that comes out here. Uh, again, the the YouTube channel is normally geared towards uh, apologetics and dealing with naturalism and atheism and and that and the like. Uh, whereas the podcast, if you go over to the Free Thinker podcast, it's dealing more uh, with these types of in house debates. But because we wanted to get a few people on and we want to actually review. Uh, the opening statement uh, of, of Tim Stratton here. Um, we're, we're probably going to play some video. Uh, it just lends itself better to the video format. So here it is. Uh, so with that, I am going to bring in Vincent and Colton. Gentlemen, how are you today? Doing great. Let's do it. I'm good. <laughs> man, of many, man of many words. Enthusiastic. I like, I'm going to start, Colton, I'm going to start giving you like Red Bull and vitamin B before we, before we go live. I do have a monster, <laughs> but I, my wife decided that it's probably best if I drink water. So Pro probably it's like, it's like after nine o'clock your time. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Probably, probably water. Water is the, the way to go. Vincent, how are you? I'm great. Good. Yeah. Good. And H2NO, I'm not going to drink water. All right, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to drink the fluid that millions of people use for engine coolant. Yeah. <laughs> Tasteless, odorless. All right. Yeah, man. All right. Uh, well, we're going to jump into uh, this debate. So there's a debate for those of you who don't know, I'm guessing for most of you watching this, that wanted to come into a video that was about Molinism and the Stratton White debate. You probably have already seen it. If not, uh, at the end of this, I will put a, a, a link in the show notes uh, to the debate itself. Head on over and, and, and watch the debate. Uh, and you can see if our, if our thoughts here are, are accurate or not, you know, judge, judge for yourself. We, we think they are, um, uh, but you can watch it. So for those of you who have watched it, we are going to try to give, uh, our, uh, our no holds barred review of, uh, of the debate, um, as, as we saw it. So, uh, in full disclosure, all three of us are reformed. Um, so there, we, you know, we, we, we do aware that we're, we are aware that we're coming from that position, but hopefully you see our comments. We are trying to, uh, be as, as charitable as we can, uh, to Stratton, uh, to, to white, to, to the debate itself and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, we are trying to do this, uh, as, as charitably, um, and as accurately as we possibly can in engaging with the, the literature and the different views that are out there as well as, um, an understanding of, uh, debate dialectics and how debates actually function. Um, and, and how arguments function within debates and rhetoric and all that kind of stuff. So uh, before we dive into it, I'll just I'll, I'll open it up um, on, maybe on a scale of, uh, of one to 10, uh, you know, 10 being the best debate you've, you've ever, like, you know, the, a, a Bonson Stein smackdown, fantastic, <laughs> wonderful debate. Like where, where on one to 10 does this debate rank, rank for you all? Um. Yeah, I've seen a lot of good debates, some iffy ones, but this one is, well, since we reviewed it, uh, I will say this, um, my rating is lower than the rating between you and McGrew, 
Ewan McGrew's debate was better <laughs> than, uh, to, than this one. And I think as we're going to talk about it, I think part of it is because um, they were talking past each other, uh, White and Stratton, a lot of the time. And um, Stratton, was it was his first debate. And so it was kind of prickly. And that, that said, they kind of, he geared off track from the debate topic um, when he shouldn't have. And so when that happens, you're always going to have a terrible debate. It, it's yeah. just always. So, um, and we saw that with McGrew. So this exact same thing when you were debating McGrew, uh, he kept steering off the debate topic and you kept putting it back. And I just wish if White would have kept putting it back into its place, and he did that sometimes, but maybe he was fatigued. And if he kept putting it back into its place, it would have been better. So maybe from one to 10, four, yeah. three, something like that. It's a solid three for me. It sucked all around. I didn't like it. Uh, the McGrew debate sucked, but I don't know where I'd rank it. I don't remember it that well. Um, so I think um, for Stratton's part, it would have been better to set out clearly the Molinism he was defending. And White mm -hmm. should have done better to interact with that particular view. But it seems like uh, it was hard. the debate was off track from the beginning. Yeah, I, I I agree. I'm I'm somewhere three, you know, uh, right right in there. I, I I agree with 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 you, gentlemen. I I think um, the the debate topic wasn't held to, um, it, um, and and there was it, it was it was scattered throughout. They were talking past each other. They weren't really trying to engage. I think the same questions. Um, we'll talk a little bit about you know some of the uh, you know Colton, you mentioned it. I mentioned it before. The 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 fatigue. I think white had not tiredness, but uh, a, a certain type of debate fatigue that, that will bring up um, that he didn't, I don't think he did any self, himself any favors to that. Um, and so uh, rather than, and, and it's, it's weird because debate love him or hate him. White is a fantastic debater and I've seen him do it a hundred times yeah. where he will, he, if something is going off track, he'll continue to go after that person's position. And, uh, and in this debate, he took a different strategy, which was to kept coming back to his notes basically which is mm -hmm. it's a strategy to do, but I think it was just ineffective. And so it just kept, since they were kind of already on the wrong footing for each other, coming back to his original position, just continued to do that kind of siloed feeling where they're not talking to each other um, because he isn't really, to, you know, Vincent, to your point, he's not, he's not going after Stratton's specific um, view either. So um, I, I was a little bit surprised uh, at, at, uh, at, at that as well. I think it was yeah, just a, a debate strategy miss on, on white. I think, I think white won the debate, um, you know, if we're doing his, you know, standard debate points, uh, but, it, but it was like, uh, you won. I think that if he would have chosen some better tactical, uh, maneuvers that it would have been a hands down, he clobbered him when he, he could have done that. It was whites to lose, I think at that point. And I think, yeah. I think white just kind of barely eked out the, the win at the end, just because of some of those tactical errors. Yeah. I think a lot of, oh, no, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say a lot of, if you see online and you, if you were following the debate, um, a lot of people said it was 75% white, 25% Stratton. The only saving grace Stratton had was his opening. Yeah. Uh, and and we're going to talk about the opening, but um, I agree. If if white took a different tactic, then perhaps he would have gone from 75% to like 99%. Uh, but I do agree. And I'm just like Tyler. I'm not a white fanboy. I think he's... He has really, really solid stuff, but some of his other stuff, perhaps like leaning towards Calvinism, is 
okay, it could be a lot better. And he lends himself to uh, low hanging fruit, I think, and yeah. the recent controversy that we have seen with other evidentialists and other folks, in, yeah, in, yeah <laughs> incompatibilists. But uh, besides that, uh, if yeah, I just think he won. Like, even though I'm not a fanboy, I, I think that he won hands down. Yeah. yeah. The cross examination yeah. is uh, just that bad. I think that's why he won. I don't think particularly anything before that was amazing. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I, I think if you're looking opening openings to openings, um, even though I'm obviously you know, all three of us are more on White's camp, I think opening to opening, even though we're going to have some pretty heavy critical, if if we're staying away from which one do we just already agree with? What was the structure mm -hmm. of their openings? How did they present it? I think you're right that it was probably is probably pretty neck and neck through the through the opening statements. Once we hit cross X, it just crash crash and burn it at that point. Um, at, let let's get to some of that. Let's get some of the the opening kind of prolegomena out of the way because we're really going to focus on on uh, on Stratton's opening uh, opening statement. I think all of us would be largely in agreement with a lot of what White said. We would just disagree on if it was the best strategy for this debate. Um, but I don't think there's much at least for the three of us that's controversial for from what he said i don't know if you all agree on that um but i but i think uh so we'll be focusing mostly on stratton's opening because we do want to make sure we're going after what was his argument so what was his what was his position we're going to make some comments about just tactic and strategies generally first but let's we'll get to the content uh, after that we want to make sure that we're going after after his actual argument so uh maybe maybe i can start off with with just talking about um uh i I know it was his first debate <clears throat> and I, I mean, kudos for him. I, I, you know, your, your first debate is going to be a public debate James and it's going to be with someone like James White. <laughs> like who's just, I mean, Hey, like talk about, talk about jumping in feet first. Good for you. Like that. That's just, I think, I think a lot of it had to do with their back and forth between him and Tyson James. And yeah. so they were already doing the video sparring. So I think, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it, uh, it rose up from that. Uh, yeah. They probably messaged each other and, you know, White probably said, hey, you interested in debate? And Stratton's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's probably what happened. So yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, good for him. I mean, just the the, the cojones that, that 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 takes to have that as your first debate. Um, I think a lot of times people look at debate and they see all the online debates and online debates are easier. They're still really, really hard, but they're easier than in-person debate. I mean, in-person debates just adds a whole level of nerves to it. The few in-person debates that I've done are just, they're, they're just, they're just harder. Um, they're harder to plan uh -huh. for, they're harder to prep for. Um, yeah. so, uh, you know, it, it it's, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people go in and they just think, oh, it's just like having a discussion. It's a little more structured. I have to do all my research and they don't really come in thinking about the debate strategy and tactics. Um, and I think that that, that that showed, we see it in spades when we get to um, the, the cross-examination from Stratton, mm -hmm. which I mean, I, I didn't time it, but I, I would say out of his cross-examination, he monologued for probably 60% of it. And then the other 40% when he was trying to get to questions, like one question, literally I timed it. I went back and I timed it. It took him over three minutes to formulate the question. And um, it's just James brutal. White, I think in the second round, he was the one who's like, this is the worst cross exam I've ever been yeah. through because you, you like, and he even gave him advice in the debate. Yeah. Like next time you do this, get better questions and come prepared. Yeah. And yeah. it's, that's just, it's awful as an audience to sit through. 
even if you're rooting for Molinism, it, it's yeah. just awful. So yeah, it, it, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty painful uh, to sit through. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm sitting here like trying to, trying to like write and do the flow of the argument, the original and mm. all that. And, and, and beginning of the cross-examination, I was just like, Oh, this, this is, this is, this is pretty painful on top of, um, you know, I, I love Stratton. Um, he, he, you know, he is, uh, I, I like at ETS, we've had lunch together. Like Stratton's a cool guy. I like Stratton, but he didn't do him himself any favors. The, the in, in debate, you have to, you have to consider. And, you know, I, I made this mistake a lot when I was a younger debater. I've, I think I've gotten better at it, but you really have to be aware of how your ethos and your pathos comes a lot, comes across. Um, yeah. and when you're doing a lot of that, well, you're just a Molinist, you know, well, then you're just wrong. Like those types of like snide comments, even people on your own side are going to start kind of rebelling against you. If you do it too much, you know, the occasional little jab, some people might be like, yeah, go for it. But when it's like every other sentence and it was just an avalanche of those types of comments yeah. and I kept wanting to be like Stratton, even if I was on your side, like, stop it, stop it, please stop. Like you're just like, it's just, it's just killing your, 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 your ethos in, in the debate. So. It's, to me, it's surprising think. because he's a teacher, or at least he teaches at Trinity. And to me, as a teacher who teaches the philosophy class, and I'm having all these students, you know, trying to find holes in a discussion and an argument, you really have to remain calm. And I try to teach these students, like, whether it's a debate or discussion, you have to remain calm, because that's where the ethos comes in. You want to be the best um, logician but at the same time, you also want to have the best rhetoric. And yeah. part of that is using your ethos and pathos, being emotionally calm and going for, I mean, white may not have won hands down, but it made it look like he won just because yeah. he had control over the debates. Why? Because yeah. he, he had control of himself. Yeah. Sometimes you could see, uh, and this is not to be uncharitable. And, and if it comes out this way, again, I apologize. Uh, but, you can see Stratton make like these mannerisms, you know, mm -hmm. like, like and he, he was sweating, it was obvious. And he was, so maybe that is his first debate. And we totally get that. Yeah. Uh, and from James White, he looked up to him and everything. Uh, but still, it should have been more prepared beforehand. Like if, the, if it was going to come to that, like he would need to almost go through some rounds and practice. Yeah. And I don't know if probably didn't do that. And so, Hopefully it was a good learning experience for him, and that's all we can hope for for the next. Yeah. This is what happens when Leighton teaches the debate class at your <laughs> seminary. I'm sorry. That's what happened. No, I don't know what happened. No, <laughs> uh, no. Do you want to pull up the uh, his opening? Do you want to get? Yeah, so I, I wanted to get. I, you know, I wanted to give one more comment. I'm glad you you mentioned like the manners and stuff because normally White actually struggles with this. A lot of times, like when I'm watching a debate, I want to be like, yeah. "Oh, White, like get your facial." Like get it under control. Get your facial, you know, expressions under control. Because sometimes when he gets exacerbated, you know, exacerbated, he he really starts expressing it, and it works. You know, at the occasional again, if you, the longer you do debate, the occasional little like thing, like to the audience, like come on, that can that can kind of be in house rallying a little bit. You can score some mm -hmm. points like that, especially you know this one isn't being judged, but if the if the judges are kind of also feeling it, and you can kind of catch a glance, and then they might they might actually gain a little sympathy for your side. There there is some strategy to it. But this is actually somewhere where where White actually struggles a little bit sometimes, and because Stratton struggled with it so much, I think White got away with more of it than he would have, because um, yeah. he started doing a lot too. And I want to be like, ooh, like he, you know, White's starting to come out. He's starting to like kind of lose control of his facial expressions, 
But because Tim's was so over the top, it almost justified White's frustration. Um, yeah. uh, so you, you got to control that. But that, but that, that is you know before we go to the opening, that that is what I wanted to mention about the the debate fatigue. It, normally, I would look to White and say, White, you need to circle back. Like if I was a debate coach, you know, and in the corner, prep for the next round. Like you need to circle back. You need to attack his actual position. You need to stop going. You know, these are bad questions. These are bad questions. You need you need to actually go on the offensive. But there is a certain amount of debate fatigue that sets in when that type of cross-examination coming and there's no questions and there's just monologues and there's all, and we'll talk about all there's all these presuppositions and all these begging, begging questions and all your molinist and, and you're you're wrong and let me you know I'll I'll show you why like all that type of stuff when that barrage comes in it it almost just kind of like it's like when someone just goes nuclear in chess and like brings the queen out first you're like I don't know what to do with this like this isn't a real game like what are, what do we do? I do that. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, like strategy is just out the window at that. So I, so I don't necessarily, people are like, oh, well, White didn't go after his argument either. And I'd be like, okay, yeah, should he have gone after that needle in the haystack? Yeah. But when, when there's that much kind of clutter that's happening in the debate, I kind of can't blame him for that either. So I, don't yeah, I totally do that, that in chess though. I, I take my yeah. queen out the first thing and go to town. So. <laughs> that. Take that. I mean, it could oh, be a strategy. Uh, it's that. probably not the best debate strategy, but okay. Uh, any other thoughts before before I bring up the opening? No. Okay. So we're going to bring up. So again, uh, I think uh, you know. I think we could continue to go down. I think we a lot of our comments about white are, are strategic. Um, uh, some of the. I mean, I could. I could. I could quibble with some of the things that he said. I don't think is you know, uh, white white was doing kind of biblical theology and try to come at it from that, that kind of perspective. And so he isn't his, his, his objections and questions and stuff. They're not quite, they don't hit very strong because they're not going after the philosophical side, which really Molinism is. Um, and so there's some of that kind of disconnect and they keep talking past each other because they're not actually, they're not trying to talk about it within the same discipline. I don't want to give um, them too much credit though. Uh, there may be a overt biblicism there by not interacting with the criticisms, but I, I don't yeah. want to completely speculate, but I probably guess that's what's happening. That's my guess. That, that's fair. And, 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 you know, with, without speculating too much, it, it could be, it could be that type of just, you know, we, we don't need, we don't need man-made philosophy. We're just going to stick with the text. I understand the sentiment behind that, but when you're getting into these types of debate, you have to engage with, with, with the philosophical literature that that's dealing with it. So that, that, that probably was a, a miss. That, that is Molinism's emphasis. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So let's, let's, uh, let's head in. So again, we are going to be focusing on his opening statement. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to bring up the, the debate. Um, if you all will, we'll do this, uh, like we've done other ones. If you all want to make a comment, uh, and stop, um, and, and talk about something about what Stratton has said, just, you know, yell, yell, stop, or raise your hand or something along those lines. And we will, yeah, Vincent, raise your hand. <laughs> yeah, raise your get on camera, you coward. I'll consider it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, oh, I need to make sure I did this last time. I need to share, make sure I'm sharing the audio. Yeah, I don't know who was recording the actual debate, but it was like really odd. Sometimes, like, the it wouldn't, the volume wasn't there until like, like, a little bit after they started speaking. So it was just off. Yeah. Uh, he, he has just said hello, uh, but it is, I, I got this yeah, timed about as best as I can. So uh, let me know if you can hear it, if there's any issues and if not, we'll just keep rolling. Sure. To everyone watching this debate, thank you for taking theology so seriously. 
and to Dr. James White. It's an honor to have this conversation with you. Thank you, sir. Well, James and I disagree on tonight's topic, but we have two things in common. We are brothers in Christ, and we never have a bad hair day. Well, although this is an in-house debate, outsiders, as Paul refers to them in Colossians 4, 5, are watching closely. If White's view of God prevails, atheists are justified in their non-belief. This is because, in White's view, God is not merely the author of evil, but he causes and determines every single evil thought and action. Yes, on White's view, God actually makes evil happen by way of cause and effect. This leads to what is known as the problem of evil. The great. So I'm going to pause it there. Really quick comment. Um, some people might be asking, why aren't you attacking those statements? Um, I, I think we need to realize while we, while I think all of us would disagree that White's view or the Reformed view entails anything that he just said, um, mm. in an opening statement, he's summarizing the arguments that he's going to make. So this actually, this isn't begging the question yet. It'll get there. But just for those watching, just debate strategy, he's just giving his preliminary summaries. He's not begging the question yet. He's he's stating his conclusions that he will argue to. Right, right. Try to. They are claims waiting for arguments. Yes. So. Yeah. Okay. Latest objection raised against the knowledge of God. If Molinism is true, however, the problems of evil are defeated. So this debate matters. Let's get down to business. Is Molinism biblical? Before answering that question, what does it mean for a doctrine to be biblical? As James has written, the only folks who are truly biblical are those who believe all the Bible has to say on a given topic. Obviously, a doctrine can be explicitly taught in Scripture. However, doctrines can also be inferred from the biblical data if, one, the doctrine is consistent with and does not contradict Scripture, and two, the biblical data supports the core tenets of the doctrine. What do you guys think about uh, that as the definition of if something is biblical or not? So I'm glad you uh, stopped it there um, because I don't know if I would necessarily agree with two. Unless he goes into and says, what does it mean to support? Which I don't, I don't recall if he ever does, but um, yeah, so two is on wobbly ground. I don't know about one. I, I think that's true. If he's trying to say that scripture interprets scripture, then yeah, bravo, because obviously the Calvinists will agree with that. It's Hermeneutics 101, but he doesn't quite say that. So maybe, possibly, I'm more friendly to one, but two just seems kind of odd. At first, like prima facie, it just seems odd. What if two is uh, just basically, you know, it, it can be, its core tenets can be derived implicitly yeah. or implicitly? It's like what he's trying to say. Would you grant that, maybe? That that's what I that was that was what I was thinking. I I I'm with Colton. I think this is a weird way to say it, but if we if we kind of try to give a charitable reading that by supports he means something like by good and necessary consequence, it's either entailed by this the the scriptural or it's it's, it's just a really it's so wobbly because it's it leaves so much room for eisegesis, and that's the issue. And we see this actually in Stratton's book when he historically eisegesis yeah. August, uh, Augustine to be a libertarian. And like, yeah. no, <laughs> right. uh, late Augustine, maybe early Augustine, but late Augustine was clearly a compatibilist. I don't yeah. care how you slice it. And uh, 
it, it's and same with Luther. He does it the same thing with Luther. But regardless, it it leaves the idea is okay. But then when it depends on how you go down that idea of supports, it could lead to some harmful things. And so that's why I say it's on wobbly ground. Right. I also, you know, again, I think a charitable reading, if we if we kind of redefine and fudge some terms, it maybe it's okay. I think this to me feels a little bit wishy, a little bit a little bit wobbly. If we're saying, okay, well, is the the debate is 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 Molinism biblical? Like, there's there's a certain level where I would say, okay, you know, me eating cheeseburgers on a Tuesday is biblical in this sense, like in this very broad sense, in the sense that like, it's almost defined. And, and, and I, you know, this, the reason I want to bring this up because I, I think we find this trend in, in Molinism more broadly, but in Stratton specifically where it's, we give these, we give these definitions of terms that are so vague and so unnuanced that it could mean it's just such a big tent. So like I could say, you know, eating a cheeseburger on Tuesday is biblical because it's not unbiblical. Yeah. Right. So, but, but for me, I want to say, okay, but like just because something is consistent, it doesn't contradict the scripture. And, and, and well, it depends on what you mean by supports the core tenants Mm -hmm. by supports the core tenants. Do you mean that it's derived? Do you mean that by good and necessary implication? Or do you just mean like, it, it supports because I, I could I could support the core tenets of eating a cheeseburger that like, you know, we have rule and reign uh, over the earth. Right. As we're, you know, we're, and and uh, and that we should have nourishment. And so therefore, that's the core tenets of me eating a cheeseburger on Tuesday. Right. So therefore, yeah. eating a cheeseburger, it's biblical. What, when if it feels to me like this debate is, a, is a narrower topic than that really kind of watered down sense of the term. Yeah, we're all we're all biblical scholars here. At least we study the Bible. And I don't know. To me, if you want to find if something's biblical, you exegete a passage. Yeah. Like you, you go through some verses and you exegete. I mean, even William Lane Craig, Stratton's uh like almost molinist father, Peace <laughs> basically does that yeah. in a philosophical work. He does that in the four views of free will or uh, four views of foreknowledge. And he spends quite a bit of time going through, is it biblical? Do we have biblical warrant? And he goes through certain texts. I'm I'm surprised, shocked that Stratton didn't actually do that. He takes this route instead. Yeah. Uh, Just for those watching, uh, you can see down here, I did, I did increase the playback speed. So if he start, I'm going to see if this is too fast, I might scale it back down, but I want to make sure we have plenty of time to get through it. So, yeah. Since we're examining scripture to find logical contradiction. Too fast. I'm going to go back to (laughs) 1.25. He already talks fast, so it's kind of yeah. like <laughs> I, I would. It's fine for me, but uh, other people. It's, it's a little, this this old brain can't keep up this late at night. I, I you okay. know, I, I, fa- I went faster than normal, but not not chipmunk. Predictions. We must presuppose logic and the rules of reason before examining the text. By assuming logic and reason, we can infer truths about God that are not explicitly taught in Scripture. An example of this is the Trinity. The Trinity, while not explicitly taught in Scripture, is both consistent with the whole of Scripture and backed by the biblical data around God's nature, such as the divinity of Christ, the divinity of the Holy Spirit, and how they share the attributes of God. In this sense, although the word Trinity is found nowhere in Scripture, the concept of the Trinity is biblical. For similar reasons, if the Trinity is biblical, then Molinism is biblical. What is meant by Molinism? It's the conjunction of propositions. God possesses middle knowledge and humans possess libertarian freedom. What's middle knowledge? 
according to Kirk McGregor, is simply God's knowledge of all things that would happen in every possible set of circumstances an omnipotent God could create. What's libertarian yeah, so, first of all, I disagree with this definition. This is part of the reason why uh, I actually don't. I think this is why his opening is okay, but then I just wish it was so much better. But here, if we're just going to talk about his opening, no, I would disagree with that. You know who else disagrees with that? Other Molinists. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's crazy. No, it's not just that God's knowledge of all things that would happen. All things? No. Middle knowledge necessarily entails creaturely freedom the counterfactual counterfactuals of creaturely freedom it's not the case that god's knowledge of all things that would happen that's just straight counterfactual knowledge god does not need middle knowledge to say that if i were to uh, drop a ball it would fall at the rate of gravity he doesn't need middle knowledge to do that that's just a straight counterfactual or he doesn't need middle knowledge that if i don't get enough sleep i'm going to be cranky <laughs> he just knows that because it's a counterfactual claim. Uh, anything like that with regards to the laws of physics or anything that could have been different, it's a counterfactual claim. It does not fall underneath mo uh, middle knowledge. The Calvinists can have counterfactual claims. In fact, many Calvinists like Paul Helm and Terence Heeson and Bruce Ware, Bignon himself, have also affirmed this. So they, I feel like he wants to have like a monopoly on counterfactual knowledge. No. They only have a monopoly on creaturely freedom. Counterfactuals are creaturely freedom. So counterfactuals are libertarian free creatures. That's the only monopoly that they have on. So right here, if he's going to define middle knowledge as that, oh, it sucks. It's it's just unfortunate. Yeah, so th this is, I, I agree. This is an example of where I said I, I think it's very common for, for Molinist with Stratton specific to give these very vague definitions that are that are I think he's trying to make the Molinism tent so wide, but that it lets everyone in that it ignores the actual yeah. differences. That it ignores the the distinctives between the and views. They're so not that, Molinists. Yeah, yeah, that's why he, that's why he can be like, well, you're a Molinist. Okay, well, if you mean by Molinist, like this lowercase M Molinism, where God just has counterfactual knowledge and creatures are free. Yeah. Sure, I'm a Molinist in that very, very superficial, vague sense. If you mean Molinism, capital M, the philosophical position, where you know, then then 100, I'm not a Molinist, um, yeah. right? And and this is a yeah. To your to your point, like, I mean, as a as a reformed Calvinist who does not affirm libertarian freedom, I can look at this definition. I can say absolutely, God has knowledge of all things that would happen in every possible set of circumstances that I'm different. God would create. Because he would, he knows what he would decree to create, uh, right? <laughs> but th but th this is this is a really good point. Where Stratton be like, well, then you're a Molinist, and I can say, well, no, yeah. because the specific difference, the reason why I'm not a Molinist, is because I can affirm this and say, well, of course God could do that, because God has has natural knowledge that He knows what He could have decreed to create but didn't. Yeah. Um, so that like the. It, it just it just flows from the conjunction of his natural and free knowledge. I don't need to have this other, uh, you know, our, our our Fred Grant called it a, a, a you know a super possible uh, knowledge of the of these you know these counterfactuals of libertarianly free creatures um, to get the counterfactuals. So just the, the 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 existence of God having this type of knowledge, this vague, doesn't get you anything like mere Molinism. Yeah, I think I think at best. 
okay, fine, you caught us red-handed. We believe in middle knowledge. Oh, because if, if uh, Molinism is the conjunction of middle knowledge and libertarian freedom, okay, we, we have middle knowledge. God has middle knowledge. But we would still deny that they have libertarian freedom. You need both to get to Molinist. So to jump from just because I affirm one conjunct, one proposition in the conjunction, doesn't mean I'm a Molinist. Yeah. It's not or. It's the conjunction of middle knowledge and libertarian freedom. I need both to be labeled as a Molinist. So if I reject libertarian freedom and keep the middle knowledge, you still don't get to the fact that we're Molinists. Right. And, and this isn't Molinist. This, this isn't middle knowledge in the significantly Molinistic sense. Yeah. Right. In, in the thing that actually set apart Molina's view from other views. Right. This, this is such a watered down. It's, it's almost like saying that like omniscience is a core component of middle knowledge. So if you affirm omniscience, he does you're say a Molinist. That. Like, he does I mean, say that, though. <laughs> I, I know. I know he does. But, but that, that's part of the problem. So this, this is just such a watered-down version of it that it's not meaningful to say that this is something that is, you know, that, that, that's definitional to, to Molinism. Yeah, it's basically so bad I already got debate fatigue from it. My gosh. <laughs> uh, I can't believe someone actually argue this. I'm sorry, it's just stupid. That's, That's cool. it. Any that? All right, let's keep going. Create. What's libertarian freedom? It refers to a person's choice, action, evaluation, or judgment that is not causally determined by something or someone else. Colton, how do you feel about that one? Oh, geez. I, I actually, I'm going to save my, uh, I'm going to save yep. my big shebang until after he says uh, what I'm looking for. Okay, um, but we'll, we'll, we'll. <laughs> We'll keep going. We'll do all the we'll do all the libertarian. Uh, Tyson James puts it this way: Libertarian freedom is the ability to choose such that antecedent conditions are insufficient to causally determine one's choice. These definitions of libertarian freedom hold whether or not there are alternative possibilities. However, if one does possess opportunities to choose among alternative possibilities in the real world, then one is not determined by something or someone else. With biblical data in mind, we can also understand libertarian freedom in this manner. The opportunity to exercise an ability to choose between at least two options, each of which is compatible with one's nature in a circumstance where the prior conditions are insufficient to causally determine the agent's choice. Whew. That's a fancy way of saying the ability to do otherwise. Pause. <laughs> then that was coming. Okay. First of all, Tyson James' definition and the first definition, that's not libertarian freedom. Yep. No libertarian philosopher ever describes it like that i'm thinking of kane timothy o'connor mealy who's kind of libertarian but kind of not because he's agnostic uh franklin even tempe who leans libertarian because he's a sourced but uh he's not they all every single one describes it as the conjunction of incompatibilism and that sometimes humans act freely that's it that is the main bare bone definition of libertarianism. It is not simply that I'm not causally determined. Source incompatibilists believe that. They just do, definitionally. They, they think that the best thing uh, to describe their view as a source incompatibilist, like Tempe here, that I'm not causally determined, that's enough. I am free. Okay. Uh, alternative possibilities are on the sideline, yes, but we don't necessarily need that. <clears throat> have sourcehood okay great you're not then a libertarian stratton if if you believe that 
So he's giving us mixed definitions, not suitable in the literature. And this is common. Yeah. I mean, you literally get five pages into Franklin's book. It was made in 2019, uh, I think 2018, uh, Christopher Franklin's book, Minimal Libertarianism, or John Lemos's book, Pragmatic Approach to Libertarian Freedom. Five pages in, they both say this. It's fantastic. And yet we see something like this from Mr. Stratton, Dr. Stratton. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous. And then to top it all off, he says, okay, you don't necessarily need the ability to do otherwise. However, I'm going to give you an ability to do otherwise definition. Yeah. It's like it's almost comical and I'm, I'm really trying to be as charitable as I can, but okay. Well, then why tell us that? Why tell us all the rest? If your chosen view has to do with the ability to do otherwise. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, beautiful. But I also think, and, and this may be a little bit pedantic, um, but when we're dealing with with categories, and, and you, you know that I harp on this, libertarianism mm -hmm. is a specifically incompatibilist position. Yes. If you are a libertarian, you are an incompatibilist. It's not just the conjunction. So so while I understand that it's the, it's the conjunction of, of indeterminism with that you're free, uh, yeah, it's a based specific line. position that says that as long as you are not determined because they're incompatible, because in principle, if you're determined, you are necessarily, it, it is in principle that you are not free, right? In, in Stratton's original definition, maybe I can, maybe I should go back to it uh, to, to show it. Uh, this one. Yeah, that one. Uh, nope, not this one. It's really hard to do this on... Uh, Come back. Like, yeah, right there. Okay. Uh, it's not simply that, that you're not determined, right? Because you could be a soft compatibilist, some type of, you, you could do some type of source, but you could be a soft compatibilist and, yeah. and think that a person's choice action value that is not causally determined, right? Yeah. Because, because they're going to say, well, it, it, in principle, you could be determined and free. It's just not the case that you're determined, but you're still free. Yeah, I think Augustine is probably the best theological proponent of that view. Um, he's kind of a weird fella when you yeah. try to classify his, his freedom, but I would personally classify him as that. He does believe in indeterministic initiators, that they need to be indeterminism somewhere in the causal chain of one's life. Uh, but he would still say... You could, in theory, in principle, have necessity upon you from original sin. You couldn't have done otherwise but, but sin, but yet you're still free. But if we put that aside, that definition, Augustine would totally affirm. That's right. And we classify him as a compatibilist. That's right. I so, mean, I, I mean, I wouldn't affirm this because because, you know, as a as a as a full compatibilist. Um, sure, but I'm not yeah. but I'm not I'm not in principle opposed to it either. <laughs> Um, what, but we're, what we're saying is it's, it's metaphysically possible for a compatibilist, a soft a one. Yeah. Hold it. Yeah. 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 So, so it just like, again, so this is, this is why I keep pointing out. There's such watered down definitions that you can't say this is the definition for libertarian freedom. If literally a soft compatibilist could affirm it like that is not, that mm -hmm. is not something that is definitionally unique to libertarian freedom. So therefore you're not actually defining the position. Yeah. So he just doesn't know what he's talking about, which is not good for his debate. But I mean, more to the point uh, his he wants to say the liberty 
So libertarian freedom in his last definition, who that's a fancy way of saying the ability to do otherwise. Okay. What he means there is rationally do otherwise. So you can rationally uh, have alternative possibilities and you can be a free thinker. So if you look at his deliberation argument, that's what he says. Uh, and that's what he means. Right. But again, why I go through these two definitions when that is your chosen definition, it's just yeah. you're wasting time in your opening. So not a good tactic. Yeah, and, and you're and you're causing never, confusion because they're they're conflicting definitions, and, and yeah. within his definition, he doesn't he, he doesn't parse between the difference between uh, conditional you know and White calls him on this. He, he, he didn't really parse between the difference between categorical ability and conditional ability because he, even in these types of things, you have the ability to choose between options. Well, I mean, a compatibilist mm -hmm. is going to say there's options on the table, right? And conditionally, you could have chosen between the options, but categorically, you can't choose between the options, right? So, so there's all these other questions that have to come up, and he doesn't address them. Yeah, that's what's really unfortunate. But I'm going to leave my personal beef with uh, Stratton out on, uh, I'm not going to go into it, but I just don't like how he wants to say, it just bugs me that he wants to be able to say, it's like the Mott and Bailey fallacy. So when you call him on, oh, libertarian freedom does entail the ability to do otherwise, even though it's his own view, he's right. like, no, no, you don't need the ability to do otherwise. Source. But you don't believe that, so it's a waste of time. Stop. Yeah. It's just, to me, it's a Mott and Bailey fallacy. When you press, when you, when you dig in to the stronghold, you just, you just retreat. And it's, it's it's just a special form of a different form of special pleading to me. It's nonsense. Bonson, any thoughts? Oh, uh, that was pretty comprehensive, guys. <laughs> I uh, I completely agree. <laughs> um, I also want to point out here the opportunity. He does this with philosophers all the time. He'll read a philosopher and then he takes their vocabulary and incorporates it in his own uh, unique view. So here, the opportunity, if you read his mere Molinism book, if you read any of his other, well, not any, but uh, most of his other uh, articles from like two years ago, he'll, he'll mention something like the categorical ability. Why? Because Bignon was all about the categorical ability and he finished up his book right after Bignon published his book. Okay. So then after he published his book, he starts to do the rejoinder to Bignon and then he goes into, oh, I had to change the categorical. You know who has a better definition than me? Franklin. So Christopher Franklin goes through the principle of reasonable opportunity to combat the compatibilist side. And he borrows it from a, a lot of uh, Kadri Vivellen. So the narrow and wide ability, it's whatever, it doesn't matter. But he takes this uh, opportunity here. So when you press him on, oh, it's actually categorical, Stratton, he's like, no, no, it's actually opportunity. I'm not actually using categorical anymore. False. You actually are. To cloud it in terms of opportunity mean, doesn't mean anything. It's an opportunity to exercise an ability. Question, what ability? Yeah. Categorical. Yeah. So you just, again, fluffed up this definition for no reason. It is the categorical ability to do otherwise. It's all you need to say. <laughs> That's it. All right. And yet you have this, like, six-line sentence. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, I think it's interesting. I mean, you know, this isn't, this isn't unique to Stratton, but I'll point this out too, where, um, and, and we've talked about this, where this leeway condition, even though you have, you know, William and Craig and Stratton 
they'll like they'll want to like officially go on the record and be like, oh well, we don't think PAP, we don't think this principle of alternative possibilities is necessary for freedom. But then the instant you start to like scratch beneath the surface, it's like this leeway condition all the way down, right? So, yeah. so you know, he wants to he wants to say it in his original definition, and it'll, I think he says it once or twice throughout the debate. But he wants to say, you know, I, I'm not saying that this this that there that it's necessary to have these alternative possibilities to be free. But then when you look at it, and he's like, okay, yeah. this is this is once he goes to these original two, and he goes into his definition, the one I'm working with, it just starts out with this leeway condition you have to have the ability to choose between options like it, it just it, it just turns into this 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 principle of alternative possibility the way he says it out here yeah is just definitional to what he thinks libertarian freedom is. i don't want to harp on it anymore because i do want to finish the thing but he will always and he will say i think in his rejoinder to white and his uh rebuttal he'll say um oh, i'm not concerned about moral responsibility i'm concerned with rational okay great but if moral responsibility entails rational responsibility, whatever is necessary for rational responsibility is by definition necessary for moral responsibility. Yeah. So if for rational responsibility, what's necessary is PAP or PAP-T or T for thinking, guess what? That's necessary for moral responsibility yeah. underneath your view, just logically. And it just baffles me that, you know, in his writings and in this debate, I just really wish White was more philosophically inclined, but it's yeah. whatever. All right, let's keep going. That's a fancy way of saying the ability to do otherwise. Determinism, the idea that antecedent conditions are causally sufficient for an effect, AKA causal determinism, exhaustive divine determinism. Ed, the idea that God determines all effects, especially all things about humanity, which would include all desires, thoughts, beliefs, actions, behaviors, evaluations, and judgments. Just. This has been harped on so many times, but we would be remiss if we didn't say it here. Ed is a dumb term. No one uses yeah. it except for Stratton, Stratton and Flowers. And his followers, his free thinklings. No, no one uses this. This is not the term for a couple of reasons. The main one is it's redundant. Determinism just is the view that all things are determined. You don't need to say exhaustive on there. It's just redundant. Here, I would actually press on um, and say, I think they don't take into account the differences in the types of determinism. So the fact that this is divine no, determinism matters, um, as opposed to, you know, it, it's not, it's not identical to causal determinism. Lots of people have pointed this out, although not everyone that's a divine determinist is opposed to causal determinism. Why so. actually pointed out just briefly, yeah. um, in one spot too, which is nice. So anyways, anything else I can move on? No, go ahead. It's important to note that antecedent conditions are either sufficient or insufficient to causally necessitate all effects. Compatibilism, the thesis held by many Calvinists that some kind of freedom and or moral responsibility are compatible with determinism. With Ed in mind, compatibilism is the idea that God determines all of a person's desires, thoughts, beliefs, actions, behaviors, evaluations, and judgments but somehow the person is still free and or morally responsible for how God made them think and act. Okay. Let's go back to the definition here. So I, I think he's improving to be honest. So, but what he's trying to do is say a, a quick maneuver that compatibilism entails determinism. 
And so when he says like with Ed in mind, I'm actually glad he said that. Uh, personally, I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm glad that he actually made somewhat of a distinction here because it's not the thesis that compatibilism is not the, just the bare bone idea that God determines all of the person's desires, beliefs, and et cetera, right? Um, it is just that first sentence that some kind of freedom and moral responsibility are compatible with determinism. Now, I think you can be a compatibilist. I want to make it very clear. You can be a compatibilist and not believe in determinism. That's right. It's it's just like tautological, or I wouldn't say logically true, metaphysically possible that you can be a compatibilist because that's what compatibilism is. It's a metaphysical claim and it's a possible, it's a possibility claim. And so uh, to say that compatibilism therefore entails determinism is to just Although some Calvinists say that, and I think by application, you could probably do that. Bignon's one of them. So you could take the application of compatibilism, a providence like that, and just have it entailed determinism. And that's fine by application, but I don't, you cannot do that with definition. Uh, definitionally, compatibilism doesn't entail determinism. And then the only other thing that I had with is, He's really slipping it, uh, but somehow, yeah. See on his face, somehow, not somehow. It's called guidance control. Done. <laughs> uh, it's not somehow we. Yeah, guidance control. Out, some type of reasons responsiveness. Uh, two, like literally two decades ago. Yeah. We don't. No one's mysteriously saying somehow we're free. No, we know we're free because of guidance control, and that's what's necessary and sufficient for responsibility. So. Yeah. And there's all types of literature, you know, this one, there's sometimes where, you know, I I don't necessarily want to say the debaters are arguing and debating in bad faith or they're hiding things from the audience or anything like that. But like, even on his definitions, he says the thesis, you know, held by some Calvinists and, and I want to be okay, but you could also bracket in held by the overwhelming majority of philosophers, right? Like this is not some, this is not some weird Calvinist, like, only Cal- like only Calvinists are the weird ones that think this. Like they're you know, this committed is, this to is, Ed. This is the overwhelming majority view among the experts in the field. Um, it was and, a cult started in the time of uh, Augustine. They've, yeah, they've it's, kept it's their beards the, long. It's just the the Manichaean Gnostics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so there's that that little slip in the beginning, and then the end. To your point, where he. I really don't like this because these slides are supposed to be just giving, these are the definitions as we hope have it. But that last sentence is I'm going to shove in this rhetorical evaluative language at the end, but somehow this person is still free and or morally responsible for God, how God made them think Uh, and act. So the problem with that that. is, is manifold. It's for how God created them and that they think and act, that would be more accurate. But the way that it's phrased makes it sound like, and, and you see this when we'll, we'll talk about the Avengers uh, analogy. Yeah, it makes it sound like that he thinks that the divine determinists believe that God is up there, like forcing our wills to do what they're going to do. Like there's this mechanistic causal thing that, that God is, God is making me choose this thing. Um, and that's, that is nobody's view. Maybe some hard, hard determinists, but hard right. determinists are incompatible, by the way. But so this, <laughs> is the, 
this the sneaking in the evaluative language is already suspect, but when it's so patently obviously incorrect to the view, uh, it just it, it this this is where it starts to even in the opening statement I start to be like mm, you're slipping off the wheels a little bit already. Let's go. The person is still free and or morally responsible for how God made them think and act. Predestination, the divine foreordaining of all that will happen. To clarify, both. This was interesting to me because he affirms predestination. Yeah. So he made. Um, he's actually been making this distinction for near a decade. Yeah. One of his early articles, he tried to say um, predestination doesn't. Uh, entail determinism. What he said is pre uh, determinism entails predestination. So you can have predestination without all the drama of determinism. And so I thought it was a cute little, you know, premise. And perhaps I'm inclined to agree. Maybe I just don't know how you could predestine without the determinism. If yeah. if, if I accept that premise that determinism entails predestination, so you can have predestination without the determinism, like the Molinist wants, like what Stratton wants then I would just say, okay, then show me how you can have predestination without determinism. I don't know if it's possible. That's what the whole gripe is about Molinism. But. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is one of my, my regular questions for, for him and for Molinus is if you predestine something, well, you, you we'll scratch that. If you, if you redefine predestination as like, I am deciding beforehand the destination we're going to, but mm -hmm. it's still up for grabs. Like I can predestine that tomorrow I'm going to go to the gym. Whole bunch of things can get in the way. It might not happen. When we talk about God, God, I think even Stratton would say that, that God is infallibly predestining the outcome, right? It's, mm -hmm. So, so when, for me that once, once you have that, like God has predestined and that is what's going to take place infallibly. That's when I I'm with you. I'd ask that question of like, what, what, that, that to me now seems like a distinction without a difference between predestination, infallible predestination and determinism. It's just that the outcome is determined in advance. The yeah. question is, how is it determined? What are the routes that get there? What are the mechanisms, all that kind of stuff? But then you, you're already in compatibilism at that point because the, 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 the outcome has already been predetermined, preordained. Uh-huh. Bonson, you said something? I was going to say you could try to backdoor it like a Warren McGrew and say, oh, well, he'll probably know what you would do, but I doubt anybody wants to take that route. So I, I guess we'll just assume. That <laughs> no, he they say it. he knows what they'll do with certainty. Yeah. Right, Vela? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cer certainty is is not uh, – what, what's the – oh, gosh, I can't stay on <laughs> We We know. No one's making that claim. <laughs> certainty is not necessity. We understand. That's not the argument. Uh, anyways, um, uh, yeah, you, I mean, I, I guess you could do a McGrew thing where he's he's foreordained all the possible options. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. That's I, 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 I don't yeah. think Stratton, I, I, Stratton wouldn't go that route. Stratton is at least at least orthodox. Uh, all right. Moving on. Calvinists and Molinists affirm predestination via God's decree prior to actual creation. The disagreement between Calvinists like James and Molinists like me is not over predestination of all created reality, but rather how God predestines all created reality. With that in mind, I'll provide four <clears throat> key contentions as to why all biblically faithful Christians should affirm Molinism. As an analytic theologian, I'll appeal to the careful definitions I just provided, along with the God-given tools of logic and reason to make a case from the biblical text. 
I will also demonstrate, since Dr. White says that only God has libertarian freedom, that his view of exhaustive divine determinism, EDD, or ED, not only leads to absurdities, but also provides a death blow to the trustworthiness of scripture and any assurance of salvation. Indeed, I contend that Molinism is biblical and Ed is not biblical. This is the type of stuff that just... I'm surprised this this is actually in a like a professional debate. Yeah. It's almost as if he didn't even read Bignon's first chapter, yeah. which is hilarious because he claimed he has. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, my gosh. Anyways, if Stratton is watching this, Gag me. This is the type of stuff not to repeat in future debates. All right, moving on. Consider my argument. One, if scripture implies both A, that humans occasionally possess libertarian freedom, and B, all human activity is predestined before creation, then scripture implies Molinism. Two, scripture implies both A and B. Three, therefore, scripture implies Molinism. This syllogism is valid, so if the premises can be supported by scripture, then any Bible-believing Christian rejecting Molinism for any reason seems to be in opposition to what the scriptures teach. What do you think about the, the argument? Uh, it doesn't work because the Thomas can affirm everything. It can affirm straight up one. One A, they can at least affirm one A, but that doesn't mean one B follows. So it doesn't, so three doesn't uh, follow at all. So Thomas can affirm in a strong predestination and libertarian freedom. So uh, that is like. I think it's a pipe dream. Like, well, you remember those earlier definitions. Now, to try to derive those from various biblical passages without just accidentally reading them in, it's wishful thinking. And if I had to think of one thing, uh, hmm. But I mean, go ahead. I was like, when he says scripture implies, I'm sure he means back to like what his biblical constraints are consistent yeah. with supports, right? So again, if you're going to build an argument on that already wobbly, number two has left a lot of room for eisegesis, then, oh, geez, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know what you're going to go and how you're going to prove that. But you can remember Craig when he debated White appealing to underdetermination. So how, so factoring that probably Stratton jumped on the Craig fanboy train, he has to keep in mind that underdetermination, well, you got to make sure your argument doesn't fall suspect to that. So uh, let's see how he gets around it. Uh, I suppose it won't work. Yeah. I, I think my biggest gripe with this is he told us that the two things that make Molinism, right? Libertarian freedom, middle knowledge. Yeah. Well, libertarian, that, libertarian occasional libertarian freedom. But the second condition isn't what he said is necessary for Molinism. Right. So, so shouldn't be, be middle not like if you're if you're trying to say these are the two necessary conditions these are the two like if you have these two ingredients you have molinism right yeah shouldn't yeah. those be the two ingredients that scripture has to imply yes if it's a conjunct so, <laughs> so he's already uh, he's already in the space of just from the beginning of his opening statement to here he's already changed what are the two necessary conditions that scripture has to teach to teach molinism Right. And to yeah, your point, so, and to your point, B, like Thomas can affirm A and B, and they're not they're not necessarily Molinists. So mm -hmm. like th this just this just does not uh so B B the, the scripture implies Molinism, which by the way should should be 
not part of B. It should be. Yeah, like that's what I was going to say. I just, I just I just noticed that. So yeah, Thomas um, would affirm one, so they would affirm A and B, but that then should be a different premise. Yeah, that that then should actually be the completion of one, not the subset A and B. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Even if you affirm two, that scripture implies that corrected A and B, uh, it wouldn't necessarily imply Molinism because B isn't sufficient to get you to Molinism. Based on his own definition. <laughs> Based on his own definition. Right? So, okay. That's pretty bad. Tonight, I'll defend four key contentions that, if true, demonstrate why my argument passes. Contention number one. The doctrine that humans occasionally possess libertarian freedom is supported by the biblical data. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 15. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The context has everything to do with the definition of libertarian freedom. Since God commands us to reason together, Isaiah 118, consider the following. One. If Christians possess the opportunity to exercise an ability to choose among a range of options, each compatible with their regenerated nature at a given moment, then Christians possess libertarian freedom. Two, at the moment of temptation, Christians possess the opportunity to exercise an ability to choose between giving into temptation or taking the way of escape God promises to provide. Three, therefore, Christians possess libertarian freedom. Thoughts? I don't see how any of that follows. Neither do I. <laughs> it's definitely not it's definitely not pulled from the text it's not drawn from text and the th this is where i think he's going to continue to be plagued mm -hmm. the text doesn't tell us why they would or wouldn't choose what they in fact choose in the actual sequence of events yeah uh, all it says is in similar circumstances other people could take similar routes so such is common to men in similar circumstances, you could take a similar route from other people. That yeah. doesn't imply the liberty of the strong categorical or opportunity, liberty of contradiction. I could take this or I could not take that, all things considered. That is eisegesis, like I predicted, right into the text. Yeah. That's an uh, in eisegesis of the incompatibilist variety, and you just don't get that. At best, it just says, hey, we have a choice, and God holds us responsible for the choice, and he gives us the grace. Fantastic. You know what? Calvinists can say the same exact thing. Yeah. Uh, seriously. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, from my viewpoint about the passage itself, I take it to probably being referring to a apostasy. So... If we're just saying Christian says, especially for me, who've maintained someone who can't fall away anyways, we know uh, that they always end up taking the way of escape anyways. Uh -huh. Yeah. So they're, they're, he's not, he's not actually exegeting the passage, right? No. If, if, if James White had more hair, I'm sure he'd be ripping it out at this point, but he's not actually exegeting the passage. He's taking, he's taking a passage. He's taking his philosophical construct and he's saying, that's what it has to mean, right? And again, none of us here are opposed to doing philosophy. So that's not a slam on philosophy, but that is that is a, 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 the, the arrow of hermeneutics and philosophy is, is just directly backwards in, in this type mm -hmm. of case. Um, and, and I think also what, what we have to look at, if we are going to do these types of philosophical analysis, 
again, because we can equally look at it and say, well, the passage doesn't say why we would choose what we would choose. Exactly. Right. It doesn't say why we would choose what we would choose in the actual sequence of events. It doesn't say that we will or won't choose to, to bounce the point. This is apostasy and we're always going to choose the, the way of escape. Right? Then that's going to go towards it. That's an exegetical consideration. And, and then it doesn't tell us. Um, again, go, going back to his, his, his thing about predestination. Let's imagine that this is this is an apostasy. This is whatever you know, any type of temptation. Ever since, yeah. You know, and and I can say, I've been on his view. God has predestined me to commit this sin, but it's not predetermined. But if it's an infallible predestination, I'm going to ask: Do I have? Is it a real metaphysical possibility? Not do I have the faculty that I could choose, you know, to sin or not sin? But is this real metaphysical possibility in the actual world that 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 I could do other than what God has infallibly predestined me to choose? And they're going to say, well, it's de it's it's dependent on this this pre-creational hypothetical freedom, but what you would do. So, so when I look at it again, this, may, this may be somewhat vague, but I, you know, I look at it and I'm saying, okay, that means that in some sense, I'm hypothetically more free in, in this, in this, in this state where God knows what I would do when he puts me. But once he puts me in this and has predestined it, then I, then I, in this, in this real metaphysical sense, I can't do otherwise because I can't falsify the predestination of God. And so in this weird sense, I'm libertarianly free in the mind of God before creation that he knows that I will do. But in the actual sense, I'm not libertarianly free. So was his for did that foreknowledge actually does that map onto the actual world? Like it just gets so metaphysically convoluted for me um, when I'm trying to when I'm trying to understand this. Whereas the simple answer is when, when you read these types of passages, when you read scripture generally, it's it's from our point of view in the world, right? It's from our view of what's happening in the real world. We don't have the hidden decrees of God about what God has decreed is going to happen. We look at it and we say, look, I have to go through my normal operations of, of choice and rationality, all those kind of things. And, sure. I, and, and I, I ostensibly am making my choices because I have, I, I, you know, I have guidance control and, and I'm reasons responsive and I'm, and I'm acting in accordance with what I want to do. That just is a conditional analysis. That's there all is. entirely in, that's all entirely, again, to his first slide about biblical, that's entirely consistent and derived from the text. The, that's let's just say we, we, we grant Stratton the leeway condition because obviously he's, he's arguing you could have done otherwise. So we grant that. But what kind of ability? He doesn't show us. He just inserts his incompatibilist ability. You know what? Even a more, to me, if, if it's going to be an intuitive war, if he wants to play the intuition war, I'll give him a better intuition, the general ability. So the general ability says, I could have done otherwise. It's just like I couldn't do it in this sense. He actually brings it up slightly, slightly in the debate when he talks about the bass, the bass guitar. So, for instance, he says... And the bass, I could play the bass guitar. He'd been playing for like 30 years. But when he was on the plane flying there, he can't because he doesn't have the opportunity to. But are we to really say he can't, in a real sense, play the bass guitar at the, the bass? No. Obviously, he can play the bass. And I think this is kind of what the verse is saying. I'm going to use the general ability against him. Because the verse is saying, yes, in a real sense, the Christian could do otherwise. However depending on the circumstance which the verse says nothing about 
perhaps they couldn't. All we're saying, all the verse tells us emphatically is that we have a choice and that God provides a way of escape. Nothing about that is incompatibilist. All right, moving on. Moreover, Paul follows this all-important verse with another comment heavily implying libertarian freedom. Think about 1 Corinthians 10, 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. If someone or something other than you determines all of your judgments, then you cannot judge for yourself on any matter. If how I guide my thinking is ultimately determined by and under the control of something or someone else, then I do not have the control condition required for rational responsibility. To support my claim... Uh, pause. First, he's never argued for any sort of control. He has not argued that we should hold his control condition, his leeway condition of the categorical opportunity as necessary for rational responsibility. He just asserts it. So now we're in actually his debate where he's making his claims. That is completely unsupported. That's so right. he, wants to, he wants to jab the uh, Calvinists for saying you can, or the Ed, whatever that you don't have any rational justification for it because you're just determined as if it's self-defeating, which it's not. And then he's like, well, you don't have the control condition necessary, so I win. But neither right. do you. Luck objections exist. And so uh, what happens then? He has never, ever, ever dealt with the luck objection in any of his rejoinder to beyond videos, podcasts, this, articles. So why should I just trust that that's okay? That his control condition is necessary for responsibility. Could not be. And and I think, like I said earlier, there's probably going to be this problem of underdetermination. Like there's no reason so far that we shouldn't take a say the categorical ability interpretation of the same passages. So I I think he has to keep in mind that it's it's his obligation to have some kind of rebuttal to those positions in the first place when providing this being the necessary interpretation of this passage. That's what I would say. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Then 15, consider the following. One, if God determines white to affirm false belief X in the actual world, then white does not possess the opportunity to exercise an ability to infer a better or true belief about X in the actual world. Two, if N is true, then God causally determines all Christians, including white, to affirm false theological beliefs. No one's theology is infallible. Three, if God determines all Christians to affirm some false theological beliefs, then white stands in no position to know which of his theological affirmations are true and which of his affirmations are false. Four, if white does not stand in a position to rationally affirm his theological beliefs, then white possesses a defeater against, a reason to doubt his theological beliefs. Five, if white possesses reason to doubt his theological beliefs, then white cannot rationally affirm his theological beliefs. Six, therefore, if Ed is true, white cannot rationally affirm his theological beliefs. Now, this argument demonstrates uh, that... You can pause. What do you want to go after, Bill? Uh, so... <laughs> um, Take a shot. <laughs> I'm not sure it's valid, first of all. Um, it seems to me... The, pro the, the, the variables seem to change between some of them in, in illegitimate ways. So I, I, I'd have to really sit there and look at this. I'm not entirely sure that it's valid. If it is valid, right? Th this follows an, a, a, you know, an elongated, what's called the hypothetical syllogism, the form. Mm -hmm. um, if it is valid, the issue with the argument is there is so much packed in here 
and he doesn't defend a single one of these if-then inferences. Right. So, so what people what people need to realize in these debates. So his side is going to be cheering, yes, 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 because we agree because they're all coming in from an incompatible position. The Calvinists are, and, and the Reformed are going to be sitting here. Basically, anyone who isn't libertarians can sit here like, wait, what, what, why, 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 why? Because there are so many principles mm-hmm. in here that we don't accept. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so he needs to give us independent reasons why we should think these are true. Right. So, so Stratton does this a lot of time where he's like, I'm just going to give you syllogism after syllogism after syllogism after syllogism Shotgun. as if that proves my case. The problem is, is that just, just piling syllogism upon syllogism doesn't actually demonstrate your case, right? Because you need to prove your, your, your contested premises, right? You can't just say because it's valid. And because I I don't have the time the opening statement to deal with the objection to these, therefore it demonstrates this. Like, no, that's not how these things work. Yeah, um, I you took a kind of a soft line response. I would go. For, let's just assume it's valid. I'm going to go for a hard line. I would straight up deny three. Uh, a yes, because of what you said, he doesn't support it. But B, that's literally what no externalist says. <laughs> so if you're an externalist uh, with regards to epistemology, uh, hello, that's literally what they say. Like, you don't need to have that strong justification. And he assumes that from the if to the then. So if God causally determines all Christians to affirm some theological f- false belief, then white stands in no epistemic position. What? That's literally the purpose of externalism is that you do not need access to the reasons in, in order to be justified. But let's just say... I even go further and grant Stratton his uh, chosen internalism because he's internalism mostly with regards to rationality and externalism with other things. So let's just say I grant him his internalism. Is it true that if I'm determined, I have to give up internalism that I'm not aware of my reasons. So therefore I'm not epistemically, I'm not in an epistemic position to know which reasons are mine so I can affirm which theological beliefs and whatnot. No. Even his own incompatibilists think this, specifically a big one, Swinburne. Swinburne himself has conceded in Evolution in the Soul, saying that arguments like this, the free-thinking variety, fall. No force at all, they fail. And the reason why they fail is because of that one premise. Let's think about it. Internalism. All I have to do to the very bare-bone internalism is I have to be aware of my reasons. Can I be determined and still aware? Sure. God can determine me to be aware of my reasons through a specific reasons responsive mechanism. That's right. Where I'm reasons responsive, I'm aware of my reasons, do what I do, but yet it's compatible with me being determined. Yeah. There you go. I'm in an epistemic position now. Yeah. So three is false. Yeah. I think also... um... I, I don't know what you think about this. This, this is probably a, a more macro criticism of this argument, how it fits in his broader uh, dialectic here is that you have to, we have to remember that he is trying to give arguments to support the thesis of libertarian incompatibilism. Yeah. In order for this argument to work, he's assuming libertarian incompatibilism, right? Because you have to have incompatibilism to make these these conjunctions, these 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 hypotheticals work, right? And because these are only true 
if incompatibilism is true, that means he's building into his sub arguments to prove libertarian incompatibilism. He's building in the presumption of incompatibilism into these supporting arguments. Yeah, and you can that just is a broader way of begging the question. And I think mm -hmm. that's probably what's going on. In the first premise and the opportunity language comes about. And I would just deny that's necessary in the first place. I think the whole point Col Colton just mentioned, you can think of an alternative where God just does predestine people to have the, the reasons for their beliefs in some internalist scheme, which why would you want to be an internalist? But whatever. Yeah. I mean, so, if I if I were to deny one, then I would deny leeway. And I kind of like leeway for uh, compatibilism. I'm kind of like a fanboy of leeway. So I don't want to really deny one. If I assume his categorical, then which i shouldn't because it is a reductio but let's just say i'm extra charitable i would give him one i just think three is easier to you know deny but yeah i agree all right moving on ed is true then it's impossible to rationally infer true beliefs by the way that that slide just reminded me uh i thought it was weird white white i think he made this like off cuff comment that like that I think was unfair to Stratton where he's like, and and the font was so small I couldn't even read it. And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I, I get like when it zoomed up, that one turned small. And so maybe he couldn't like keep up when he was trying to write notes. But generally, this 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 maybe seemed picky. That that seemed like a little bit of an underhanded jab from white to that one, yeah. especially when you compare the two. Like they're the same size font from what I can uh, tell. That that argument also is not something new from Stratton. He had it uh, using Jack instead, instead yeah. of white. He just replaced the name, just random name Jack. It's on his website. He's published it like a month ago or so. And judge for yourselves, as Paul commands in 1 Corinthians 10, 15. No, if God determines you to affirm a false belief, there's nothing you can do about it. No matter how hard you try, you cannot judge for yourself and infer the truth. That's absurd. Moreover, if Ed is true and- Remember, none of this is supported. He's just, it's just, it. he's putting un, he, he's not, he's not giving independent reason to believe any of this. He just keeps, you know, the, the, the analogy I give, he's just put, keeps putting bottomless buckets inside of bottomless buckets and hoping they're going to hold more bucketfuls of water. It's just, it just continues to be, there's no independent reason to believe these things. He's just building and saying, okay, based on that, I'm going to infer this other thing and I'm going to infer this other thing and I'm going to infer this other thing, but none of it has been proven are demonstrated or given any independent reasons for all the way down the chain. You cannot judge for yourselves, then you cannot rationally affirm theological claims of knowledge. Inferring true beliefs over false ones and rationally affirming claims of knowledge are vital attributes of a rationally responsible person. This active use of reason is illusory if that is true, and thus, if that is true, then humanity is not rationally responsible for anything we passively think and are ultimately determined to believe. According to White's Ed view, you are nothing but a passive cog, as John DePoe says, at the mercy of the whims of the deity of deception who determines all people to affirm false theological beliefs. Now, if pause, the uh, pause that for just a slight moment. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I, so uh, that sounds a little bit uh, skeptical scenarios territory, which I presume that Stratton and all of them would say even I assume they they don't deny the possibility of skeptical scenarios. No, um, that's what makes it so dumb. Exactly. So 
it can easily be used against their own view. So therefore, they're not rational and affirming any of their free will beliefs. Maybe, you know, what they perceive. Maybe all their beliefs come by chance or something. You want to say like just, you know, they just randomly believe things on the act of a nonsense libertarian whims, and that's the world we live in. You know, yeah. But it doesn't help yeah. or solve anything. Think even if you take Stratton, let's just say go extra Cartesian on it with extra Cartesian internalist sprinkle, that's kind of where he's going. Uh, so yeah, I guess, but still, I mean, Cartesian uh, foundationalism still has its problems and I don't want to get into them, but they still have its problems. But even if I grant him that, it still hasn't been shown that internalism and uh, ed, determinism itself are incompatible. That that just doesn't follow. You haven't shown that. Um, and also he's to me, as a like a super fanboy of Stratton, by fanboy I mean sarcastically, like <laughs> as like I read his stuff a lot, but I'm a super, super duper critic of him. And you can ask Tyler that. Yeah. Uh, he wants to try to fit five articles into one sentence. <laughs> like literally, that whole sentence is probably like five article titles. <laughs> Which yeah. is like, dude, okay, we get it. You thought a lot about it. You thought about it wrongly, but just like you're trying to do so much at once. It's just like, come on, uh, just pick one thing. And that's what kind of derails. Oh, it's, it's so important. Yeah, it slowly goes from the free thinking argument to the unthinking argument really quickly. Yeah. 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 I, I, you know, I. <laughs> Look, we, we, we also have the, the, we, we, this will come up when we get to the problem evil section, but like he in here, he goes on this principle of like God, God somehow is this God, God of this God of deception. If it, you know, if he, if he has you, you know, determines you to believe false things. I mean, okay. The Bible tells us flat out that he, that he gives people a strong delusion. Right. So does that, like we have biblical examples where God just does this, um, you know, revelation 17, 17, he, God, God is the one that put it in their hearts to give, you know, these wicked kings to give over the kingdom of the beast. He just does that. Like, we, and God has no problem taking credit for it. Does that make God the God of deception or the, you know, the God of handing things over to the beast? No, like this, the, the rhetoric is just bad. And it, and it, and it relies on principles that are stronger than what are asserted in the Bible. But like, uh, the, the other problem is, and then this is where I'm going to go back to the, he still needs to like parse the distinction between predestination and, and, and predetermined because I'm going to say, okay, on Stratton, on your view, God has predestined all the false beliefs. Yeah. yeah but those so your, ones your, God, your God is, your God is the, the predestining God of deception. Yeah. Those, yeah, but those are, are your fault. Yeah. Yeah, those are like your fault because you arrived at it through libertarian freedom, but still he published a world in which you would do that. So in some sense, idea. You know, yeah, he actualized the world. Okay, weakly actualized. Oh, but I'm going to take the open theist route. He still actualized it. Yeah. Okay. And because he did it, he it's published in the actual sequence of events. We can still say you couldn't have done otherwise. Oh no, you can't make his predestination fallible. So does that? It's he calls it the bullet bill fallacy, but I think it's trash because I don't think he's adequately. Uh, what we're doing, uh, Tyler and I are. are doing a modified version of uh, Welty's bullet bill argument against Molinism. And I think it's brilliant. And uh, he just doesn't touch on it, which he calls it a fallacy, but doesn't give reasons why. And that's, yeah. Oh, that's trash. Yeah, you can't do that. You gotta <laughs> argue against it. Yeah. All right, moving on. 
author of scripture is a deity of deception, knowing the original Greek does not help. Why trust what was written in the original languages if the author is untrustworthy? Moreover, if a God of mischief assured you of salvation, do you really have assurance of salvation? On the moral issue, however. None of that follows. <laughs> none, none, of it, none of it follows, and none of what it, the pillars that it relies on have been demonstrated by independent means. No, God is a maximally great being, and you are a free thinker who can take thoughts captive, 1 Corinthians 10, 5, before they we take agree. to 8. Yeah. We, we agree with all that. That's because you're Molinist, boys. You're Molinist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Too early for it. Continue. Dang, you got us uh, there. The whims of the deity of deception. No, if Molinism is true, you are an active and rational agent created in the likeness of a supernatural and maximally great God by his grace. God has revealed truth and desires all people to know the truth. First Timothy 2.4, not just all kinds of people, but all people. God does not determine every human to affirm false theological belief. By the way, that's not in the first Timothy passage. Uh, so again, he's, he's, he's just kind of bastardizing. He's not actually exegeting these passages, but... Anyways, think about it. And as Paul would say, judge for yourselves what I say. The Apostle Paul, the same guy who wrote Romans 9, is clear that regenerated Christians possess a strong sense of libertarian freedom. Moses goes further and explains that even the unregenerate have the freedom to choose among alternative options. Consider some highlights from Moses in Deuteronomy 30, 10 through 20. Now, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. This day, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Moses commands the Israelites to make a choice between alternative possibilities. To follow oh, or not. They have a range of options from which to choose. Between life and death, between... But, sorry. No, no, I don't deserve a response. I just scoffing at it okay so yeah moses tells us to choose fantastic where's the categorical ability in there it's in the choice oh it's yeah. definitional oh my gosh no he's gonna implant an eisegetical philosophical commentary categorical incompatibilism the ability to do otherwise categorically inside of choice what that means what determinists don't choose anything no one says that. If God determines me to choose X, I choose X. You know what doesn't follow? I don't choose. I'm not choosing X. Okay, you know what robot. does follow? My choice. Boom. I just made a choice. I mean, it's kind of pedantic. It's kind of like I'm trying to be like sarcastic and kind of uh, punny there, cheeky, but yeah. Yeah, cheeky. But it's serious. I'm kind of serious. Like it doesn't it's follow. Fair. It's fair. All fair here. Yeah, uh, the, the the issue that I have here is that this is this is what this is what happens when proof texting goes awry, right? You'll you'll notice all of the little ellipses, uh, you'll notice all of the skip verses, right? What he's leaving out, he's leaving out major sections, right? Leading up to this, right? Start starting <laughs> starting in verse six. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to <laughs> love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind. Like God will change your heart and condition so that you will love the Lord, your God. Right? Yeah, yeah. The change in condition is Amen. the thing that leads to the outcome of love, which by the way, just kills his true love argument that unless you have libertarian freedom, you don't have true well, love. 
right? Well, the, here God is saying, I'm going to determine that you love the Lord by changing your heart to causally bring about this outcome. It, it talks about, uh, you know, later where, again, all these ellipses that are in here, right? Uh, there, there's, uh, where, where is it? Uh, uh, verse 17, but if your heart turns away and you, the, you will not obey, right? If your heart, if your desires change, right? Uh, then you're not going to obey. You're going to choose to not obey. Why? Because your desire, your heart has changed, your desires change, right? So he he's conveniently ellipses I'm going to create that verb now, uh, ellipses, ellipsizing uh, these passages out of uh, the text and leaving out the context. He's no, just, no. Th this is not how you do exegesis. Are, are you familiar with the MSB? The the message model? No, the MSB, the Molinist Standard Version. You see, those oh, ellipses no. are in there perfectly. <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. Okay, have a go. <laughs> that was such a dad joke. I can't even. Thank, thank can't even you. Thank you. Ben, ben, ben here, tip, your, tip your waitress. Yeah. You're welcome, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this, this just, Colton, to your point, this, this also just plays on the. Well, it says choice, so therefore it has to be libertarian freedom. Well, only if you beg the question of libertarian freedom. <clears throat> Moses commands the Israelites to make a choice between alternative possibilities, to follow God or not. They have a range of options from which to choose, between life and death, between blessings and curses, and Moses pleads with them to choose life, making it clear that they actually possess the opportunity and ability to make this choice. It's up to them and not determined by things external to them. Moses is clear that they possess the ability to do it, and that it's not even too difficult for them to make this choice in the actual circumstance in which they find themselves. He says that you may do it. This implies that you can do it. This is clear biblical support for libertarian freedom. In a nutshell, I've offered multiple biblical texts from Paul and Moses supporting the idea that humans possess libertarian freedom. Indeed, these passages of scripture supporting libertarian freedom are much clearer than any supposed proof text for exhaustive divine determinism. I mean, we could, we could come up with God declares the ends from the beginning. God upholds all things by the word of His power. I mean, there 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 are so many passages that talk about God. It's foreign nation, and He says that God predestines all things. And again, we need to we need to understand the the difference there. So, I don't understand why He says I've. I think I heard him correctly. He said I've I've shown multiple verses that show libertarian. Free. He showed two. This. And First Corinthians ten thirteen, uh, that's it. So one from the old, one from the new. How? I mean, I guess you know thirty ten through twenty. Oh, but he made and he, didn't ex and he didn't exegete either of them. He he proof texted, yeah. pulled out a couple of clauses, and then did a bunch of. I don't I don't know there. if I heard him correctly, but if I did hear him correctly, and if he did say multiple, that's laughable. He may be taking for granted all the thinking passages he brought up and then backward, you know, <laughs> like all the PlayStation 2 games work in my PlayStation 3, right? So uh, that's how it's backwards compatible. All right, moving on. To counter my first contention, Dr. White must exegete from Scripture that all these folks described in Scripture really only had one option compatible with their natures in these specific circumstances and that God predestines all things via determinism. Well, now that libertarian freedom has been shown to be supported by Scripture, let's... I wonder if he thinks that... that this is just an aside. I wonder if he thinks God predestined things... Like, he predestined things via determinism. Like, did... So, I, I'm having I'm having a hard time of thinking like again I'm just having a hard time separating these things. Does he, is he not determining the thing that he's predestining someone to? 
Like, is no. that not a determined? Like, that's what you would say. No, it's, saying, it's it's like saying I predestined all the words of the book that I'm going to write, but I didn't determine a single word of it. Yeah, so I I would respond like that too. It's the same thing with weak and strong actualization. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Platinga. It's a decent. We use the one who I think who originally coined the term. It's a decent uh, distinction, but to me, it's a distinction without a difference. Because guess what? You're still actualizing something. So. And and by the way, for, for those, like, no one says knowledge is causal, but creational decrees and actualizing things are causal. <laughs> so, yeah. anyway. Control is, a, a, is almost a, to me, control is a, has a built-in condition of causal. So if you want to say God controls things underneath Molinism, I actually had a short exchange with this on Facebook um, with another Molinist, and he couldn't answer me. And I would like the Molinist to answer, maybe Stratton could, but how can he control something without causing it in some sense? Yeah. Like oh, to me, yeah, in question. order to control it, you have to cause it. And then you're like, okay, he causes it, but then he causes it in a different way. And the compatibilist screams, exactly. It, this this is similar Just to, our points. this is similar to like questions about like it's not completely similar but it, usually you hear them say something like oh well we think desires do matter when it comes to choices but once you take the mm -hmm. causal abilities away from them it's like well what what, what do they do you know it's a little bit empty there that's true all right move to contention number two the doctrine of divine predestination is supported by the biblical data i don't need to share all the biblical data supporting exhaustive predestination in tonight's debate because both dr white and i affirm this much the passage however that demands the most attention is found in a letter written by paul in ephesians 1 4 we read of something that happened prior to genesis 1 1. god shows us in christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him Paul makes it clear that God predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. Accordingly, God doesn't merely predestine some things or all kinds of things, but all things work according to God's plan before creation. Paul, with his words predestined, purpose, and counsel of his will, describes what Abbott concludes. The words all things seems to imply an exhaustive view of predestination. Well, this is exactly what the Molinist affirms. Bottom line, the Bible clearly teaches two things. A. Humans possess libertarian freedom, and B, human activity is predestined before creation. And B doesn't get you Molinism, to, to his original definition. Yeah. I mean, we can just say all the predestined stuff, amen. Like, yeah. So why Thanks. does scripture imply Molinism? Contention number three. It's logically impossible to causally determine a libertarian free choice. Recall the precise definitions offered at the beginning of my speech. With these definitions in mind, it's just as impossible for God to determine a libertarian free choice as it would be for God to create a married bachelor. Ed entails that prior conditions are sufficient to causally determine all effects, including all human thoughts, beliefs, choices, actions, sins, and evils. And libertarian freedom entails that prior conditions are insufficient for these things. So if Ed is true, libertarian freedom is false. And if libertarian freedom is true, Ed is false. So my third contention is true by definition. This brings us to contention number four. Middle knowledge is the only way to predestine a libertarian free choice. Since a responsible reading of scripture implies that all things are predestined prior to creation and that some things are free in a libertarian sense, and since it's logically impossible to causally determine a libertarian free choice by definition, the only option left to consider is the middle knowledge option. But why is it uh, the case that is a biblical inference? Just I just 
just real quick, again, it doesn't follow that Thomas can say the exact same thing, libertarian freedom, predestination. They don't. Classically, they don't. That was the whole point of the controversy between uh, Molina and uh, the, the Catholics. So, no, they don't affirm middle knowledge because they don't see it as necessary. You can still be free in the Thomistic sense, and God can still predestine everything. So no, it's not the only way. It's not the only game in town. Yeah, it's not. And and notice again, I, I I regularly point this out. I know you point this out. Again, Stratton is moving the goalposts. So remember his middle not his definition of middle knowledge at the very beginning, and we are like, no, middle knowledge is this is too broad. Like a Calvinist could affirm this definition of middle knowledge. Specifically, middle knowledge is about libertarian freedom. Now, when he actually gets to his contention, now he says middle knowledge is the only way to predestine libertarian free choice. Right. He's he's mm -hmm. he's he's slipping definitions. Right. So his his definition slides at the very beginning have nothing to do with the actual arguments when he gets down to them. Because these contentions have been affirmed, consider the fact that if predestination prior to creation is true, then there seems to be only two ways for God to ensure it. God could determine everything to occur exactly as predestined. No libertarian freedom. Or God could use his middle knowledge to ensure what he has predestined. So this is my question. I thought this was interesting because they're the ones that harp. Knowledge isn't causal. Knowledge isn't causal. Knowledge isn't causal. How mm -hmm. would God's middle knowledge? Because remember, so so again, we're going, we're going, you know, free knowledge, knowledge of himself and necessary conditions. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, natural knowledge, free knowledge, knowledge of what he is in the actual world. Middle knowledge is is the knowledge in between that it's the, the knowledge of the, all these counterfactuals of what we would do how does that knowledge ensure the outcome of what he has predestined in the actual world i don't get b uh, even on molinism i don't get how his knowledge ensures that i mean that would have to be cause it it it, it, it causally guarantees the outcome yeah. of what he predestines I think um, to me, I use a short analogy. Like, let's just say, I, I use it, I call it the jukebox analogy. But let's just say you have libertarian freedom to make a record. Okay, so you have libertarian freedom. But before you put the record into the jukebox, you do have that freedom. But once it's in the jukebox, it's published. So then you have a person going up to the jukebox and they flip, let's just call him God. You flip through all the different songs. And so when they play the song, that song is that song it cannot be changed it was could be changed prior and maybe they had different variations of that same song in the jukebox but when he plays that song could that song choice be otherwise as in could the could the lyrics and the music be otherwise i i don't see how he's causing that to play so how could you do otherwise? Uh, and God can ensure it. So it, it's almost like they're trying to balance these two things. Um, God's sovereignty and freedom, just like what Molinus wants to do. But I, I really cannot see how they can do it effectively, at least in a coherent way. And here, I think it's just so obvious that Stratton is trying to do it, but he's he's failing at it more than some of his other Molinus peers. Yeah. So. Bonson, anything? Well, there was a time where they would try to tie it in, maybe with, like, say, the circumstances the agent was in, but 
most people were adept to point out that, you know, if you got libertarian freedom and the pap's true, um, your circumstances don't really <laughs> affect your choice that much, does it? So it's always been kind of a problem in Molinism to try to explain like how that actually works out in the end. Which, uh, yeah. Good luck. It's not my problem. Yeah. I, I, you know, Colton, uh, uh, we, we and Grant had, th this was our, our conversation earlier in, in, in his message of saying, okay, well, like just because God puts you in that circum certain, certain circumstances, right? Are those circumstances determined of your choice? Because if not, then it gets really chancy at that point, right? Mm -hmm. It seems to expose yourself. To, Molinism doesn't seem to escape then like the, the, the luck objections, right? And it got, you then have a grounding objection that how could God know that in that situation I would do that given that circumstances if those circumstances aren't sufficient to explain my specific choice within that circumstance? Right. If they're yeah. insufficient to explain that, then the circumstances, him placing me in that circumstances, aren't how God actually knows what I would do in those circumstances, because the circumstances aren't sufficient to explain why I choose what I choose in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, and so it gets it, it gets right. back to really, really, really chanty at that point, and it doesn't seem to actually give an explanation. So, all right, moving on. By creating a world in which he knew how free creatures would freely choose. But remember, we've already examined scripture implying libertarian freedom. Indeed, Moses made it clear that the Israelites had the power and opportunity to choose either life or death, and that it wasn't even too hard for them, that they could do it. Ezekiel 33, 5 and 11 implies both God's middle knowledge and libertarian freedom, as it exemplifies the fact that God does not desire the death of the wicked and invites the wicked to choose otherwise. If they Can you uh, pause it? Morning, they would... Just real quick, I think it's this passage, but when... White and Stratton were cross-examining. It was really bad, but White actually just point blank asked him, "What's the context of it? Like, what is the context of this?" And he just couldn't. He couldn't say it. He he was stumbling, and it was really awful. And so, yeah. if you're going to protect like this, you got to know the context. And the worst part is that White knew the context about the parable of the sour grapes. So it's like, oh well. Seems like you're spoof texting. Well, you might be right. Yeah. Yeah. And this and this goes back to if, if you're going to make the case that your view is is biblical, supported by the data. Again, every, when everyone hears biblical, they think that it's going to be it, it's by goodness or influence. It's, it's actually taught or derived from the biblical teaching. You have to exegete the passages, just proof texting and then launch padding into your, your philosophical analysis is not going to cut it. Yeah. Would have saved themselves. This implies middle knowledge. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? But if James is correct, God is imploring them to do something they cannot do. It's like God commanding a person that he determined to be born without arms to play basketball and shoot a left-handed layup, and then warning them of the consequences if they don't. Again, that would be categorical inability, not conditional inability. Um, and and again, I, this is where I regularly point out, again, it's not the same thing. <laughs> we, yeah. we have biblical examples, right? Whatever you think about who hardened Pharaoh's heart first is irrelevant because at one point in that chain, 
God said, I harden Pharaoh's heart so he won't let you go. Now go command him to let the people go. He is giving a command to Pharaoh and hardening him so he cannot let them go and then judging him for it. Mm-hmm. We, we just, we just again, you cannot rely on that principle when the Bible gives that specific example. And the out for that can't be, oh, well, Pharaoh hardened it first. Great, Pharaoh hardened it first. I mean, th- to me, that's like saying, okay, if someone, you know, if someone robbed someone, uh, then then that makes a difference if God hardens them so they then murder someone, it tells them not to murder someone, then they murder them because God hardened their heart to murder someone and then blame them for it. Somehow that gets away from this incompatibilist principle because they stole from someone first. Right? That just mm-hmm. doesn't relieve the tension. So when when it comes to like hardening language, when people say something like that, I kind of think of like cosmic Joe Biden, who just wants to take credit for things like people do themselves. Like, oh, the market got a little better. That was me. And uh, I think that's what comes of the hardening language a little because everyone just does it themselves. And God's just like, yeah, I did it. I'm cool. Yeah. Yeah. I've had Molinus tell me that he hardened them by allowing them to harden their hearts, their own hearts. How awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, that, then that then that just lexically makes no difference between the passages that say harden heart harden his own heart, <laughs> like that that just then becomes indistinguishable when it says God hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Why even state them differently? Well, we anyway. save ourselves because we choose to believe, right? Is that how it works? Yeah. God God did God didn't allow Pharaoh to harden his own heart. Well, of course, yeah, I mean, sure, but then when God hardened his heart, that's the same thing as allowing him to. It just makes no sense. Anyways. No, these people do not have to die. They were not determined by God to reject God. That's absurd and an irresponsible reading of the text. Since scripture affirms libertarian freedom, we know that God does not predestine all things. No, since scripture affirms that libertarian freedom, he hadn't proven that. Yeah. Things by way of determinism. Middle knowledge is the only option. So, with my four contentions in place, it seems rational and responsible to conclude what my original argument proposes, that the Bible teaches both libertarian freedom and predestination, and holding to Molinism. Indeed, thinking logically about all the biblical data, it seems to me that Molinism is the most biblically faithful and logically consistent view of God's sovereignty. To counter my case, Dr. White must do more than cite scripture Molinists already affirm. He must show that either, one, the Bible precludes Molinism, or two, that it's invalid to infer a view from scripture. Since his own published work, however, infers concepts not explicitly taught in scripture, White seems to concede the second point. This leaves him with the monument. I'm not sure why the video isn't keeping it. It's, I think it's because you're using the bootleg version of the debate. No, it's, it's the real one. <laughs> like a film of showing that the Bible precludes Molinism by dealing <laughs> oh, I think I think it might just be a glitch. I don't remember this happening before, but right. the Bible precludes Molinism or two. Yeah, I don't remember either. Review from Scripture, since his own published work, however, infers concepts not explicitly taught in Scripture. White seems to concede the second point. This leaves him with the monumental challenge of showing that the Bible precludes Molinism by dealing with my four contentions. That's what Doctor White's got to do. If he does, that's not what he has to do, actually. So White 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 doesn't have to show that it precludes Molinism. He just he's he's the right. Stratton is the affirmative. He yeah. has to prove that it's there. White just has to remain the skeptic. Yeah. That's it. That's his burden. People don't like that. Well, well, really, we should go after truth. Sure. But in a debate, White does not have that negative burden to prove that Molinism is not there. He just needs to play the skeptic and poke holes in the affirmative position. True. True, Dan. 
does anything to the contrary, don't be distracted. No matter what approach White takes, ask, ask yourself, is the Bible teaching us that God commands us to do one thing, but God determines us to do something else? Does God expect us to make decisions that we, we are incapable of making? Or does the Bible expect us to make decisions that uh, we can do it? So, yeah. Uh, he expects us to live perfectly, but yet, and we're morally responsible for that, but yet we cannot. Yep. That's literally Luther's contention. So, yeah, again, he does expect that. We, he expects us to live like Christ, but we cannot live like Christ. Yep. That's why Christ came down. Right. And so, yeah, that I don't yeah. see how any of that follows. And to me, it's just a scream, a last fall, far cry of personal incredulity. Be, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. I, it's, I, and I know Stratton wouldn't affirm sinless perfectionism. So, it, anyways. Yeah. Just as Moses says. I challenge Dr. White to produce one single Bible verse or passage in support of Ed that cannot be just as easily or better explained by Molinism. So in closing, let me reiterate that non-Christians are watching. This is important because if White's view is true, that only God has libertarian freedom, then the problem of evil provides justification for the atheist non-belief since God actually makes every instance of evil happen by way of cause and effect. Wait, this is randomly tacked on? Yeah. yeah. At the Isn't end. that great? Yeah. <laughs> It's like a big fu uh, right at the end of the debate. It's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a big. None of this is supported. You know, I, I'm just going to now go on a tangent of these other things. I haven't actually argued for any of this. I'm just going to uh, now kind of raise the emotional stake of these things. It, um, he, yeah. he also brought up that he also brought up the the problem. So th this is another debate fail that he does. Right in his in his in his in the beginning of his opening, he talks about how he's gonna he's gonna talk about the problem of evil and how it raises the problem of evil. He never yeah. actually creates that argument, and then he brings it up later in the cross examination as if he had argued for it in the first place, but it wasn't part of his original contention. Remember, in a debate, you're affirmative and you're negative. The cross examinations are supposed to be about the content in the affirmative in, in the opening statements and the entailments thereof. Right. You can't just like go off into like, OK, well, now we're going to go into the problem of evil section, which neither of us talked about. Uh, it's just not how not how those arguments work. Well, you wait in your opening, you didn't respond to my opening. So I don't think you know how yeah. this works, pal. Yeah, I was going to I was going to let that pass. I mean, White White rejoined that. He, he pointed I, out. I'm <laughs> cheap. I'll bring it up. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> so, OK, it, I, I think. That tactic's so bad. It's like if White at the end of like his uh, opening monologue just went, and uh, and if you believe, hey, if you believe uh, libertarian freedom, that means homosexuality is in the Bible, and it's a good thing. See what that costs you. And it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Got to argue for it, pal. Yeah, you got, you got to demonstrate. All right, I think we're on the last couple sentences. This includes Satan's rebellion, the fall of man, Hitler's Holocaust. And as Dr. White has previously affirmed, this even includes child rape. If Molinism is true, however, God does not cause and determine these things. Pause. He just predestines it all. Yeah, yeah, he beat me to it. Now I'm done. <laughs> uh, and this is where anti-Molinist arguments come from. So I actually have a Molinist book um, from Ken P. Presque or something. I, I can never. It's just Molinism and Contemporary Debate edited by Ken I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but chock full of all these awesome philosophers and theologians. 
And one of the primary arguments nowadays is actually against Molinism is not the grounding grounding objection. Actually, it's it's really the anti-Molinist argument, which basically means that it's incompatible with the consequence argument. So Molinism itself is incompatible with the consequence argument. So if you affirm Molinism, yeah, based on the consequences of that, you still don't have counterfactual or got uh, you still don't have free will as a human being. And so it's kind of the same way. Yeah, he doesn't causally determine it. Sure, I guess I'll give you that. But he does predestine it. So I'm not sure if an atheist would be like, oh, thank God. <laughs> Ironically. Yeah. He, 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 he infallibly predestines it and his middle knowledge ensures the outcome somehow. Yeah. Okay. Like, again, we're just we're on distinctions without a difference here at this point. All right, I think we're... If Molinism is true, all the problems of evil are defeated. Just like that. <laughs> That's amazing, because I, I, if Molinism is true, they're all defeated just like that. You think, like, all the literature would realize that. Yeah, like, you think You think all the philosophers would be like, oh, solved, like, just like that. <laughs> like, but it's Molinism a rhetorical is still power. such a minority. It's, it's like a minority camp within a minority camp within a minority camp. Like, no, like, it's, no. I had a, a, a friend uh, recently tell me here, and he's a big um, advocate against the common evangelical apologetical train like this. Um, it's just rhetorical power without academic rear. It's all it is. And Stratton, unfortunately, he is like the name brand of that uh, to, to me, he, and specifically for the Molinist camp, which is unfortunate because Molinists have a lot of good theologians on their back, tons of great ones. But yet for oh, Stratton, it's just uh, rhetorical power without academic rigor. rigor. And notice the iron, I'm Iron Man. I, to me, as like when he first did that, just like that, to me, it was like, is he seriously doing uh, <laughs> the Avengers thing right there? And we talked about it. I don't, I'm not going to account him for it. I just think it's kind of cool. But uh, besides that, the actual content of it, yeah, I don't. You would think that everyone else would be like, "Oh my gosh, you're right, Strand. Holy junk." Yet yeah, here we are. All right. So uh, yeah, so that's 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 the end. Uh, I you know we're we're almost at two hours, so so I wanna I wanna wrap up here in in a second, but. I want to bring it up because it gets so much press. The Avengers analogies. Yeah. Right. Again, it's not a problem using illustrations. Probably doesn't make your opening or probably doesn't make your, your conversations later and all that kind of stuff evergreen, but it is what it is. My issue with it is they just aren't good analogies. They fail. Right. So let, let's, let's take, you know, maybe, maybe we have five more minutes. Let's, let's talk through. What are your thoughts on the, the Avengers, right? Hydra, you know, manipulating Bucky and turning him bad or Dr. Strange looking at all the different options and, and weekly actualizing the, you know, the, the, the one world that saves the world. Why are those bad analogies for determinism and Molinism? I think there's a lot of different routes you can go to. So let's just <clears throat> uh, stick with the Bucky one because he says, oh, Hydra determining Bucky to do what he does. Um, I don't see how that follows. 
namely because he wants to do it as analogy, pressing that there's one similarity between Ed and this illustration and, and uh, the Bucky and Hydra. What is that similarity? That he's causally determined to do what he does and he can't do otherwise. So no, I can point out another uh, relevant difference and the relevant difference is for Ed, if I'm going to use his terminology, God determines in different mechanisms, different ways. And he just does not, and I'm saying this charitably, he does not, under, most incompatibilists don't. Like most laymen incompatibilists in the debate, and I would consider Stratton, I don't care if he's a doctor, he's a layman with this debate. No scholarly, scholarly uh, professional incompatibilist would ever argue that. Why? Because it doesn't follow. It doesn't follow. The The relevant difference is that with uh, Bucky, he is circumventing his agency, his inner telos. He's circumventing it. So Hydra is determining outside of his his agency. But in compatibilism, it doesn't, he doesn't determine, like God doesn't determine a theistic compatibilism or theistic determinism. He doesn't determine outside of our agency, but through our agency. This is the closest professional I can think of that argues something sort of similar is Paraboom in his four case manipulation argument, but he at least has the candor and the uh, the professionalism to to actually back up the claim, right? Um, and I still don't think it follows. And many people also have said that it doesn't follow compatibilist and incompatibilist. So yeah, that's for that analogy. I just that's my relevant difference. Yeah. Um, you guys can attack the other ones. Yeah, I was going to say the Hydra one, the, the, the short way of saying it is the Hydra one is just a straight manipulation case. Um, mm -hmm. Right. It, it, it's it's not it, it's it doesn't show all the differences that compatibilists have shown between compatibilistic determinism and straight manipulation. Right. So when when they say when they want to say, oh, well, compatibilism just is like manipulation. Well, all, I mean, compatibilists have been showing relevant differences between manipulation and, and compatibilistic determinist, you know, deterministic models for decades. Right? This this isn't new. This isn't new. In the, the the fact that it's that that Stratton so kind of crassly says it um, again to your to your point just shows he isn't really conversant with the literature on this for some reason, which is weird since this was his his PhD. The so that that's the Hydra one. The Hydra one fails to show determinism because it only shows. A, a, a type of determinism that is a straight manipulation case. And, mm -hmm. and, and you know what's really bad about it is what makes it worse is that, you know, he had the time to read Bing Yong's book. He's probably read Anderson's essay in Calvinism and the Problem of Evil. Mm -hmm. And it's, well, you know, uh, at least maybe respond to those arguments before just presenting this one like a knockdown and the uh, maybe it's white and he's like, oh, well, he's not philosophically apt, but people have already. No. So I think to be out, let's just give him some some leeway, <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> so if we give him some leeway, here's what I would say. Yeah, he does respond to Bignon's coercion argument and manipulation argument, sort of, in their video response back and forth which, like a couple of years ago with Flowers and Hunter. But I, I, I personally don't see it as satisfactory because what is their main response back uh, to Beyond? When Beyond points out the relevant difference that Vela and I just did, what is their response to that? Oh, but Ed means Ed. All things are determined. 
Like that's their number one response. And it's just like, tell me that you're question begging compatibilism without actually, or uh, incompatibilism without actually telling me you're question begging incompatibilism. That's how you would do it. Like A plus, because what you're, what you're saying is the determining mechanism doesn't matter, but compatibilists for decades have been saying it does. And so to just, it doesn't matter because it's determined. You, you just literally not, you just not hear us. Yeah. And it's just really, really frustrating. Yeah. It, it's to say incompatibilism is true. Why? Because determinism is incompatible with freedom. Why? Because incompatibilism is true. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. So what about the, the last one, right? So doc, Dr. Strange looks down the corridors of all of the, the worlds. He, he sees the one, the one world that possibly, right. Uh, and, and he, and he, you know, he, he actualized that one. Is that Molinism? I don't know. Um, I'm leaning towards a yes, but it's like, it's a charitable. Yes. It's like a hard charitable. Yes. Um, I think it, it has some similarities. Sure. I don't see why it would make it more true. Like, I don't know, maybe it would make it like, I don't know, cogent, I guess, but I don't know. I, I just, yeah. I, I'm kind of agnostic about it. I think it would be a yes. I think it's a cool scenario because I actually like Endgame and uh, I, I like Avengers, but yeah, um, I don't know what you guys think. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm iffy on the Avengers part. I think uh, what was that one famous director that did uh, that one postmodernist movie? So they were all like trash. But uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't completely agree with that sentiment. But I think there's some some truth to that. But uh, for the Doctor Strange analogy, I don't mind it for middle knowledge if that was like the goal. I don't remember what it was brought up for, but uh, um, I do find it's a little weird to compare it to like, you know, creation from nothing, bring a world, knowing it exhaustively. But I guess if you want to work it out, maybe there is 15 million ways to only look at it. So throw it out there. Why well, not? Uh, so I'll, I'll give a harder, harder criticism of it. Yeah, go for it. It, it actually proves compatibilism, <laughs> right? Because it, because it, it brings about it, it because it's conditional, right? The conditional antecedent conditions, <clears throat> bring about the outcome right so so remember there's there's a couple of things one is it it's not clear that it actually gets uh the 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 causal the the dr strange off off the hook for being right dr strange is praiseworthy for this mm -hmm. right well why is he praiseworthy if if he's not causally you know determining and predestining the outcome for it right imagine that hydra did it the same thing but they knew the world where they had world domination, right? Would we say that because Hydra did the exact same thing that Dr. Strange did, but it just ended up in their favor for world domination, but it went about by the same mechanisms after that, that Hydra wasn't blameworthy for it? Well, no, we would say that they were conditionally causing the outcome. And so therefore they're blameworthy for it, right? Because they're, mm -hmm. they're somehow causally bringing about and determining the outcome by doing the same thing that Dr. Strange did, right? So there's that. The other thing is, if you remember in the movie, Tony Stark basically looked, you know, go to Stark Strange and says, is this, basically, is this the one that we win? Mm -hmm. Dr. Strange can't tell him why, because if he told him it would bring about the wrong world. Right. Right. Yeah, that yeah. act is that, that, that act of, of not telling him 
is causal to bring about the right fork in the road of the world that he's in. Whereas if he told them that would be sufficient to bring about the wrong world, right? So even in this structure, the way that it plays out, the, the antecedent conditions are causal to, to and, and sufficient to bring about the outcomes that they go. There's just compounded. There's multiple ones. That's just one example brought out in the timeline. So this is actually, if you actually look about how it's brought about, in the Marvel movies, it's a conditional weak actualization, right? But it it doesn't get you Molinism, right? Because it's not yeah. some type of knowledge about what they would do freely. It's a conditional where he actualizes a specific world to causally bring about a specific outcome. And it could mm -hmm. be different if the causal conditions were different because those would be sufficient to bring about a different world if it was different. Right, that just is a co the conditional analysis. Yeah, you you can make the wider context and interpret the scenario in terms of determinism. Uh, that's fine. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think it's kind of like a time travel. I remember there's this one philosopher that had a debate with one other guy, which I don't remember his name. I think of the philosophers that I'm talking about is Taylor C Y R. Do you know the name? Sear Taylor Sear Taylor Sear Sear. Thank you. Uh, the he gave this time travel example, if I remember correctly, where this dude, like, uh, you know, he did something to get the keys back for his time mm -hmm. machine. He went three minutes in the future and then, you know, went four minutes back. And they're like, would you have gone in the time machine, gotten the keys and done that all over again, going back? And, you know, intuitively, you're like, yeah. So it seems like in these kind of time examples really fit really well with determinism rather than contra. Yeah. Yeah, because you you get the you start getting these rollback issues where you start getting into the conditions matter to the outcome, which just is a conditional analysis, All right? So you have a problem. Yeah. Uh, someone someone asked. I, I I gave a cheeky example a, a little bit earlier that like some sometimes Molinism kind of reminds me of like the movie Saw, the, the horror movie, where like Saw knows that if he puts you in these really 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 like <laughs> terrible situations. Uh-huh. Like they're supposed to make you a better person. You're missing the point. Right. Like character so, building it, the anyways, anyways, so like it, it it doesn't seem to get away to get away from uh right. So so <laughs> so in certain situations, like like you know, he brought up the Holocaust in certain situations of the Holocaust where people just did or, or World War II where people did terrible, terrible things. Well sure. God just put them in those contexts. Character building. Right. God, God just put Job in the context of being in front of, uh, you know, in, in, in front of the devil. And when he could have created no world at all. Yeah. Uh, so. I, I mean, we, yeah, that, that's all that we, I mean, we could go into all of our actual objections to Molinism. Uh, there's, there were replete, but, but just going to, to Stratton's arguments. Um, yeah. Sure. So that, that, that's why I think those, those so, Avenger, so. Aven, I don't have a problem with him using Avenger analogies. Those two are just bad. They just no. fail. No, that's a hilarious analogy with much more twisted aspect to it. So I love it. Saw so is perfect. So, all right. Any any other thoughts before we before we wrap yeah? Um, I have one thought. I saw in the comment the chat here that uh, Shane M saying if it was his PhD, he knows it. Come on, probably with regards to saying that he is. You know, yeah, it's kind of hilarious. He is a PhD, but he doesn't know these things. I want to put it as bluntly and as charitably as I possibly can. He does not know the literature. He just does not. He doesn't know it. 
And like maybe the response would be, uh, you know, who are we? Like we don't have PhDs. I don't think Vincent has a PhD. <laughs> but I know Tyler's working on his master's, but I don't have a master's. I have a bachelor's in theology. But listen, uh, I've I kind of like tongue in cheek say I'm Stratton's fanboy because I have talked to this man for months and months and months, decades, personal conversations. And I'm saying this. And we're not really on speaking terms now because he doesn't listen to his Molinist brothers. He doesn't listen to his Calvinist brothers. He just argues what he wants to argue despite anyone telling him to do otherwise. Again, pun intended. So it's it's really just bizarre. When I bring up all these professional academics and these compatibilists here and this compatibilist here, he is just lost. And if he does respond to it, it's it's just like what we see in the debate. He cherry picks. He cherry picks like straight up. He actually admitted that to me one time in personal correspondence and Facebook. Uh, he cherry picks data from compatibilists completely out of context. It's just like it's bizarre. So, no, I'm sorry. He may have a Ph.D. in systematic theology. He is not a philosopher. And that's why I quote a lot of these philosophers. That's why Vela does. So I've been, like we quote professionals in the field. He's not a professional in this field. And I'm, I really want to say that in a charitable way, but I need, it needs to be said. So when he went into this debate with James White, although it was awful, and although I think J uh, James White won, it was clear that he didn't know a lot of what he should have known, uh, especially with the definitions that we pointed out today in this review. All right. Well, we are we are over two hours, so we're gonna we're gonna hit, end it here. Uh, Got to get home. Got to get home to our fams. Uh, but th but thank you, gentlemen, so much uh, for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, if anyone has any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, uh, please feel free to reach out. You can email me uh, at freethinkerpodcast@gmail.com or visit the blog freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or join. Uh, all of us are in the Freethinker group page on uh, Facebook. Um, the, the, the both, uh, you know, the two of you, Vincent, Colton, uh, where can people find uh, more uh, about you and some of the things that, that you're working on? Um, for me, so my buddy and I are just trying, starting to run up this podcast, uh, Truth C Squared. So it's just basically him asking me, it's very laid back. It's just him asking me different theological questions, sometimes political questions, um, stuff like that. And it's just, you know, how I see the truth about it in a biblical way. And a lot of this is kind of intersecting with uh, providence and sociology and so forth. So uh, it's nice to, uh, it's on YouTube. You can search up there. We have a couple episodes. Um, and I'm, like I said, on the Freethinker discussion page. So um, as long as you don't look like an ax murderer, I'll probably add you if you, if you send me a request um, so that, you know, if you want to learn more about how I view Calvinism, um, pretty similar to uh, Tyler's here, but if you, if you want, you can email me. Um, we can get connected that way. But I am writing also a huge, huge reply, which I'm sure Tyler's, when I finish it in the summer, you probably have me on. I think we talked about it before in the past, but um, uh, it'll probably be finished. I say probably, but it'll be finished in uh, the summer, and it is huge, like hundreds of pages, because uh, I'm adamant that he doesn't know what he's talking about. And so that's the project I'm trying to finish up and hopefully it'll be finished up in the summer. And so we'll have more on uh, Stratton material, I, I guess then. So 
Awesome. That's you it. Can, yep, you can find me on the Third Man Podcast. It's on YouTube. I've been writing on the Council blog for years and Spirited Tech dot whatever. And uh, yeah, whenever Tyler has me on, I think we're gonna one day possibly do a thing on Aaron Ra or something. Some no, John Loftus. John Loftus. Yeah, we got we got to we got to get that. Colton, you you can get on that. Also, we're reviewing. I actually got to get a new one out too. We're reviewing chapter by chapter his uh, his book on miracles. So, okay, sweet. All right, well, gentlemen, thank you very much, and uh, and and thanks for thanks for coming on. See you all again soon. Yeah, thank you. All right, thank you all for watching. Good night and God bless. <laughs>